Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm week by week, arc by arc. My name is Matt Freeman, an overworked, underappreciated psychoanalyst, and I'm joined as always by my patient uh, and amorphous mass of semi-sentient tentacles. Scott, uh, how are you feeling today? I, I, I guess I'm okay. I'm worried that my bad relationship with my mother is preventing me from reaching my potential. Also, my tentacles keep murdering people. But I don't want to mm. talk about that right now. Because as mm. you said, this is... I like the hmms. I like the very... very that's, that's all I know about shrinks. So that is them saying hmm. So that's good. Hmm. <laughs> but I don't want to talk about that right now, Matt. I want to talk about Worm. Because as you said, this is the podcast where you, a Worm expert, guide me, a first-time reader, through Wild Bill's world of superheroes, supervillains, and everything in between, as I inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what this story is and where it is going. This week, we are finishing up Arc 18 Queen, starting from the Jessica Yamada interlude. Did I say that right, Matt? Yeah, you know, we're going to be pretty permissive on the pronunciation as usual. All right. But I think that I think that's correct. Nailed it. All right. Uh, and finish up through the rest of the arc. Matt, this is a, a, a pretty action-packed uh, little section here on top of uh, a really, really long interlude that is just someone psychoanalyzing people, which is incredible. Um, but there's there's a lot there's a lot going on here. Um, it's a really nice conclusion, I think, to everything that we had set up in the first half. Yeah, you guys, you guys by now know that we like to talk about the character stuff um, relatively more than we like to talk about combat. So you can expect us to spend quite a bit of time on this uh, this beginning Dr. Yamada interlude. Yeah. Um, the con- the combat's fun too. There's a lot of there's a lot of really great uh, specific moments and, and little dabs of characterization that we get throughout it. Um, so that's going to get its due. But uh, we're I've been excited to talk about this interlude for a long time, um, ever since pretty much the first time Scott said that these people need therapy, because <laughs> they do. All right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I am really excited to get into this. I think we are going to spend probably half the time on this first interlude, which is crazy, but I wanted to make sure that we got in as I didn't want to leave anything in the interlude that we haven't talked about. So we're going to spend as much time as we need on it, which means we're probably going to go long, which is just typical for us yeah. these days. Right. Go, go average, basically. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I, Matt, we, we had so many comments and questions and stuff this week, and I wanted to answer a lot of them, but I wanted to talk about Nazis for a little bit, <laughs> um, because one of the, the biggest surprises I saw in last week's episode was a series of pushbacks in regard to my general stance on the crusader interlude i i I tried to address some of the comments in the reddit thread but i know that we have a a much bigger listener base than just those people that check reddit regularly so i wanted to take a moment to use my platform here to discuss it as well um first off i just want to say that i i think i i failed last week to do a really good job articulating my stance um on this whole thing and, and that's absolutely on me uh we were coming off a weekend where literal nazis marked marched into charlottesville virginia and an innocent woman wound up dead uh, we recorded the episode on the day of president trump tr- president trump's truly insensitive press conference where he appeared to defend the side of the white supremacists um i don't want to get into politics that's as far as into it i'm going to go uh, all that to be said i was very mad um and i came into this podcast kind of carrying some of my anger into the recording session um and i think that was kind of the result of of 
my general dismissiveness. Um, I, I do want to say that I, I do think humanizing monstrous people is important. And I strongly agree with Matt, both what you said last week when you were, uh, I think, trying to get me to to push back a little bit on on my stance of fuck this, I don't want to do it. Um, and as well as a lot of great points that people made in the Reddit um, and, and about, you know, just my dismissal of white supremacists as a whole and then of the text of this chapter specifically. Um, you know, just like last week, I was carrying all that stuff on my back and I just I was not interested in having a conversation about humanizing Nazis. I, I couldn't do it. I tried. I even said at the beginning of that section, I'm going to be a professional. And then I I didn't do it. <laughs> um <laughs> And I, I thought about like, as I was going through editing, I thought about cutting that stuff out. I thought about just like editing around it and just covering the parts of the chapter we really got into. But I felt like the most fair thing to do here was to keep the episode real and just leave everything in. So, so that's what I did. So to all the people that said that, Scott, you, you should be humanizing these people. You should be looking at the, the root cause of the stuff. You're absolutely right. And I failed to do that last week and that's on me. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about though is, and I promise Matt, I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk in a bit. <laughs> Go for it, man. But, uh, I, there's, there's this common element I saw last week that people said I was really dismissive of those, these white supremacist characters, but I was really sympathetic to Noel's Vista clones that happened who are literal monsters. And, First of all, I think a lot of that, again, stems from my anger over Charlottesville and that it's a lot easier to pity fictional characters than characters who represent a real and prescient threat in the country that I live in. Um, and, and when I say things like they suck and I hope they die, I'm kind of not being fully literal with that statement. It's more of a statement of dismissal than it is a legitimate wish to see Crusader's artery ripped open like these poor Vista clones were. Um, that would be terrible. I'd much rather him just be in jail. Um, but I did want to talk about this a little bit because the difference to me is this idea of choice. And we talk about choice on this podcast a lot. And I, I, I look at the character like Purity and I see her as someone who has chosen again and again and again and again to ally herself with this group. Um, she says she doesn't consider herself racist, but she pals around with them and she pushes forward their agenda. Um, yes, she's a human being. Yes, she's suffered trauma. And yes, she's a, a caring mother to both her child and to poor Theo. But she's also a Nazi <laughs> and she chooses to be. And I think that the difference with the clones is that they are these monstrous deformed beings birthed into existence really only to destroy. That's their, their whole purpose. Like all of their and we even see this confirmed in this chapter in this section, I mean, we're going to get to this where it's like all their positive emotions turn to zero. All their negative emotions are turned all the way up. They, every insecurity they have, every thing about themselves that they don't like or thing about other things they don't like is like cranked up to the extreme to turn them into this destruction machine. But they do have mm -hmm. those memories. They have those thoughts, those fears and those loves. So yeah, I, I pity them. I pity that poor Vista clone who is the same person that sat in this chair with, with Jessica Yamada um, but doesn't have the ability to deal with her anger, her grief, her insecurity. I, I pity her poor, miserable existence and her necessarily short life. Um, and yeah, I, I pity her more than I pity a woman who propagates racist ideologies under the guise of helping people. Um, and that's just how I'm always going to be. Yeah, I think uh, the clones are more purely tragic creatures because they can think and they can feel 
Yeah. Uh, but the like due to their nature, they can't think or feel anything except pain and, and rage and destruction and, and negative things. Like you said, um, that's like just kind of ob- objectively speaking, very pitiable, um, much more pitiable than someone who chooses to hurt people, basically. Yeah. And, and like I get that there are white supremacists that have been indoctrinated into this thing from birth. Um, that they've grown up in a family that believes these things and they just believe them because they were taught to. I, I get that and I understand that and I think it's important to study that. But Purity is still making choices. She's still able to make decisions and she is continually choosing that path even if she was indoctrinated into it from the beginning. So that's the difference to me. And and I think this gets back to one of the big themes that Wildbo is exploring in the story, that nature of evil, what makes people good, what makes them bad, how much of who we are is defined by those events of our past versus the active choices we make today. And it is very much true that Wildbo humanizes everyone to do that. Like he will like from the Nazi to the evil clone, he will take time to humanize these creatures and people so we can try to understand them. And yeah, and that's more dramatically interesting anyway. I mean, it's yeah. not it's not interesting to read a story about a, something that has no humanity. Yeah, yeah. And I think like I think that the interesting thing is like despite all that pain and trauma and all those poor choices that they've gone through, the central question of the story is kind of can someone that's all this has happened to them, can they be good? And I think Taylor is kind of the key central figure for that. So I, I do agree that when I refuse to engage with the story, um, I kind of why butted myself. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's very clear that on at least some level in this chapter, Wildbow was trying to humanize Crusader. We see that um, his family harvested him for organs for his sister. And yes, he did a truly terrible thing. And And even though he's a horrible human being that I still don't like at all. Uh, he is a human being. So you guys were right. Uh, I cop to that. I apologize for any unprofessionalism and, and any confusion in my ability to articulate myself. And that's really all, all I want to say. If you have any more things you want to talk about that, feel free. But I think I'm done mentioning it on the podcast for now. Um, but I just wanted to get that out there. So thanks for letting me take the time. And Matt, I will give you back control of your podcast now. All right. Um, <laughs> sounds good. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's really an entirely appropriate subject matter because uh, like a major theme of, of this work that we're analyzing is is really kind of the nature of good and evil and, and really more specifically mm-hmm. like what it is to try to be to, to be good and to do good, like you said. Um, and and just how how hard that can be. Um, so it's uh completely uh, appropriate it's not a it's not a tangent i don't think and, and yeah. i think it's speaks to the power of the work that it prompts conversations like this i completely agree yeah so all right um we're gonna get right on into this arc now scott all um, right and let's do it we're gonna start with that chapter that we're we're so excited about oh. 18.z i guess uh, jessica yamada uh so we this is told as um, you're probably aware if you're listening to this as a series of uh, vignettes, uh, short interlude pieces where she's t- she's essentially talking to different patients. And the first patient that P- PRT psychiatrist Jessica Yamada is talking to is a disabled patient 
who can only communicate through some sort of uh, assistive communication technique involving eye blinks. Uh, and the person very laboriously uh, asks for Amy. And then, of course, we realize this is Victoria. And this is the first time we realize that her mom was wrong. Victoria is indeed still in there. Yeah, and it makes you kind of wonder if that interpretation is just wishful thinking on her part, that it's easier for her to think that her daughter's just gone, or if someone lied to her and she was led to believe that from some authority figure in the facility that was trying to pity her. Um, there's really no textual indication one way or another, but yeah, just it could just be that they didn't even realize that, that like, like they essentially thought she was vegetative and then she, and then they had her in the facility and she started trying to blink and they realized she was trying to communicate something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, but we start this chapter off immediately with <laughs> the most depressing shit I've ever read. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I love that we start off with this communication technique and it isn't until we fully established like how much of a pain in the ass it is to communicate this way before wild Bo just starts shortcutting. Um, cause we literally see every them go through the alphabet letter by letter, arduously counting through the alphabet step by step for each letter. Um, and, and it's this really good way to drive home just like how terrible of an existence Victoria is having right now, how even just, talking to someone is this huge chore and it creates empathy immediately for victoria and it also makes you immediately like jessica yamada which i think is is very important because liking this character is is central to everything in the rest of this section working yeah that's right it emphasizes how frustrating this is but also that she's willing to be patient for it yeah so yeah so of course victoria can't speak uh, to Amy because Amy's in the birdcage, which which Jessica reminds her, and Victoria becomes angry and she u- uses her aggro field on Dr. Yamada, and then uh, Dr. Yamada tries to calm her down um, and explain that there's a good reason that Amy had to be put away, and Glory Girl responds, uh, I don't care. Um, Jessica responds that that was in Amy's best interests, but Victoria says that it wasn't in hers and that she's alone now. Yeah, so it, it seems that whatever Amy did to Victoria's brain, she never actually fixed here. Unless we're supposed to believe that this is just her liking her sister. I tend to doubt it, right? I mean, I, I that's not my read at all. I don't know if, if what you thought. Um, I mean, the, the only other possibility is that she wants Amy to come back and put her back the way she was, which, which I almost is... think this, the text specifically says that's not the reason, though. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and I mean, I, I I think we're probably not being led to think that anyway, because if Amy were capable of doing that, then she wouldn't have left Victoria in the shape that she did. Yeah, and it's it's this really key moment because I think, at least from my perspective, we've seen we've seen all this from Amy's point of view mostly. So we're like we're kind of on team Amy, and we like feel bad for her, and and we pity everything that she's gone through. But this is a reminder that like what she did was monstrous like this is horrible and the small victory of the scene for victoria is that she can get lowered into a bath with hoists i mean that's like that's how it ends for her and it's just this like like i still love amy i think she's a great character but like this is a reminder that what she did is uh yeah and the bath thing if anything it just sort of causes you to realize that 
like this this weird deformed flesh pile body of hers she's sufficiently capable of like feeling in it that a bath actually feels nice which means yeah she's always aware of being in this flesh blob body um yeah and uh it's it's probably pretty unpleasant it's a great start and she's invulnerable and can't be harmed so yeah great start yep oh but it gets better scott because next (laughs) on the docket is uh sveta is how i'm gonna say that um aka garot i think that's how you say that word i don't ever say that word i say garot but i don't know if that's right or not i i don't either you know, it's one of those words you read a lot. And you never say. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I rarely have occasion to use that word, luckily. Uh, <laughs> I, I so, would hope so. <laughs> so Jessica has to enter a special reinforced suit um, to interact with Sveta. Um, and and it's told to her that containment foam will be employed if there's any if there's any problem. So basically, we're just setting up like a lot of tension and anxiety about about like, OK, what's what exactly is she doing? She's putting on this extremely you know heavy duty hazard suit to go talk to this patient and you don't yeah. you don't really you're you're really kind of anxious about it yeah which uh fair based on what we learned about this person but i love yeah all the little details like her, her code name um every single minute detail of those uh security measures yeah it's very it's very nerve-wracking for both jessica and us mm-hmm. yeah um there's this there's this moment where she says, uh, uh, no, I'm scheduled to see Nicholas after. And then the uh, the nurse says, sad boy. Um, Jessica didn't correct the head nurse. She hated using the code names. It reinforced the idea of the patients being less than human. And this is the first real concrete evidence that Jessica Yamada is the greatest person in the world. Literally. Um, <laughs> yeah. Also, Wild Bull stole my high school nickname, uh, Scott Sad Boy Daily. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I, I like I like even the small touch that she calls it code names. She doesn't call it like cape name or yeah. superhero name or anything. Because like to, to her, I'm sure I'm sure the whole like villain hero thing is just obnoxious to this person because she's she's trying to help these people. She's trying to see them as people. Yeah. She's trying to get rid of these labels that, that they that they love to give themselves and, and these boxes they try to fit themselves into. Um, so she's just like, I'm not only do I not like the cape names i'm not even going to think of them as cape names in my head yeah and and the names become so important throughout the rest of this chapter too because this this difference between code names and real names is a beat that we're going to hit again and again um and so we define yamada's opinion on them right here um so we see that she doesn't like them and then we get to the wards later in the chapter we're going to see how they refer to themselves how they like to be called and how that says something very specifically about who they are and what they're going through. And I think it's very clever to set that up here and kind of reinforce it throughout the chapter. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely get to that. So she dresses in this this armored suit. And as she's doing so, she's thinking about how, with experience, she's learned that safeguards such as these are essentially never going to be adequate um, to the dangers that she's facing. So she just kind of has to resign herself to, to the risks and, and do it anyway. Yeah. Almost as if this is immediately foreshadowing something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the beat that I really like here is a very small one, um, where the nurse asks her what her plans for Sunday are. And she basically says, uh, I don't have any because I don't make plans anymore because something is going to happen and these people are going to need me at some point. So I'm just, mm-hmm. why bother making plans? 
Um, yeah. Yamada for president. Yeah. 2020. Yeah, my vote. I'll be I'll be on the ticket. Yep. <laughs> so she enters the room with Sveta and is immediately ambushed from above. She hears metal in her suit creak. And Sveta tries to pull herself away, apologizing, genuinely apologizing, uh, but her tendrils, of which she is made, are still contorting the suit, snapping structural members and popping airbags as Dr. Yamada tries to fake calm and walk her through relaxation exercises to calm her down, um, even though Dr. Yamada herself is terrified. When Dr. Yamada reminds her of her goal of having some human contact by Christmas, Garot finally lets go, uh, attaching herself to the bed. <laughs> And here's another beat where we're like, like how good of a person this is. Like she's just so good. And she's not only is she good at her job, but she's just like so kind. And it would be very easy for her to just hit the containment foam button here and just mm -hmm. not deal with it. But she doesn't do that because she actually cares about this girl and wants her to improve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She's taking a huge risk just, just to try to help this person. So we, we finally get a good look at Sveta when she's on the bed, and it turns out that she's basically just a face surrounded in these swaying, super strong tendrils. I kind of imagine it a bit like a, an anemone with, with very long tendrils. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I think she's probably the most unfortunate case 53 that we've seen. I agree. Yeah. And and I think this this is part of a beat that we are going to hit throughout this episode is Cauldron sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and we're going to we're going to do that again and again but it almost seems like at this point we're already starting to like lay the seeds of our next big post noel conflict um mm. as in after we move on from this we got another big bad waiting in the wings already so let's let's hit the beats to establish them as assholes and this poor girl does it pretty well yeah, there's definitely a lot of case 53 stuff in this in this arc. And, you know, uh, of course, we all remember that that Victoria, despite her appearance, was not a case 53. But but Sveta certainly is. Yeah. Uh, and, and we're going to see we're going to see some more um, stuff about about case 53s going forward. Um, yeah. So so they, they begin to talk. Sveta herself thinks that she is a bad guy. She thinks of herself that way because she killed people before she was sequestered. But Dr. Yamada tells her that her power was the one that killed those people, not not her. Um, so this is an interesting perspective. There's very interesting stuff to be said here about passengers, certainly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think this goes into our conversation earlier about choice and what makes you a bad person and not. And this continuing idea of how much choice do people with powers actually have. Um, and And like this is something we're going to get again with both the clones and then again specifically with noelle as she seems to be like losing control of her body to the passenger later in this uh this episode so mm -hmm. this this conversation with this poor little girl seems to be a great way to set up that whole discussion and kind of anchor the arc on this theme of is it you or is it your powers and what does that mean yeah yeah definitely it evokes you know um, when we get to the end we'll see we'll see how how uh, Noelle sort of has to almost bargain with her power. And we see Sveta kind of doing the same thing here where, where she's, she's having to calm, not so much calm herself down as calm her, her passenger down, perhaps. I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know what the right way to say that is. But, no, I think that's right. Um, yeah. 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 So uh, at this point, Sveta hands her a journal full of her heartbreaking dreams. And uh, I'm not going to go into that too much other than that. It's like, just like, 
so crushing to to read about like her her dreaming that she was in bed with a boy and, and yeah. had a normal body and you're just like <laughs> fuck you cauldron fuck yeah. you and uh so t- towards the end of their conversation sveta says uh why aren't you scared of me because i have no reason to be jessica lied meeting the girl's eyes and then she thinks to herself the truth is that it's because i've spent more time in the company of monsters than legend she thought trust me honey you aren't the scariest i've run into not by half yeah that's it's <laughs> it's a really really great moment and i think that moment gets me into this whole thing what i want to talk about here right now is you know when you and i sit down to analyze literature and to kind of parse it and look through it and and interpret it one of the things we have to do is constantly ask ourselves questions to to probe the work and find out what the author is trying to say Um, because a novel is a world like entirely created by one person when they show you something when something is presented to you there's always purpose behind it always and we're going to move out from this part of the chapter and spend the rest of the time with Yamada talking to different members of the wards um the good guys and we're going to see their varying levels of damage and trauma and how terrible their world is um and so we've seen now Victoria a former good guy who is damaged physically and and emotionally and and then but in the middle of this we meet this deformed but seemingly sweet little girl um who is also a murderer um is also just horribly disfigured so i I, we have to ask ourselves, matt why did wild bow choose to have us spend time with her right here why is this part of the arc where we are analyzing our wards and i think that's a really interesting question i think you know we can look through it and see is it just to learn about Jessica Yamada? Yeah. Uh, sure. Um, is it is it so we can contrast a cauldron cape that can't control her power with our big bad Noel? Um, is it so we can set up cauldron as the big bad confrontation that's inevitably coming? coming? Sure. But um, I think this is meant to directly contrast and even more so compare to the things that the wards are going through. That this trauma and this emotional damage, it doesn't know sides. It doesn't know... Uh, it, it doesn't care if you're a villain, if you're a rogue, if you're a hero. It's just a universal human trauma. And all these people are just screwed up kids just trying to do their best. Yeah. Uh, t- to add to your list of things that this scene is accomplishing, we see that word monster yet again, which we've we've mentioned many, many times where we have characters who are unfairly calling themselves monsters or unfairly being called monsters or or maybe even in this case, you know, perhaps even fairly being called a monster, but, but she's not a, she's not a bad person. She's, she's a victim. And and that's our, our little, a little duality there where you can be both a victim and a monster and you can be both a hero and a monster and you can be both a villain and a monster. It's almost, uh, it's almost, uh, uh, a separate, a separate category of thing. Um, and, and, and then of course there's also like the usage of like, there are moral monsters like Jack, and then there are physical monsters and, and it's a, it's just like the word hero. It's, it's one of these words where people can twist it to mean all kinds of things. Yeah, I completely agree. And I like your use of duality because I think that's again, another beat we're going to hit again and again throughout this arc, mm-hmm. um, almost immediately with how the wards name themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's get to that. We yeah. cut immediately to Jessica's session with clock blocker the next morning. 
Yeah, and and again, you know, we talk about Wild Bo's structure a lot, and it, he he likes to do these like sharp cuts from something to juxtapose. So like she goes to talking about talking to a physical looking monster saying she's met all these other monsters and then we cut immediately to clock blocker <laughs> and yeah i think surely he's not a monster um but there is intent in that segue in the rhythm of that segue um and and that he ended on that beat specifically and i think i think it it feels like an intentional attempt to like keep us on our toes as far as um like who is the actual monster? And that's the question you're asking yourself throughout this. It, it sets that up. And of course we kind of learn specifically at the end, one of the people she was specifically talking about, but I like, we move into the hero side now with the word monster still in our head. Yeah. 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 That, that's really interesting that while Bo chooses to begin with clock blocker and not say weld, who would be kind of the more yeah. obvious, like, like segue from a K 63 to a K 63, um, we, we, very, I think, you know, I think there's, I think you have a, an excellent point that there's some calculation involved in the order in which we're getting these, these, um, uh, interludes with these. Yeah. Oh, guys. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, like I said before, I'm, I'm unreasonably excited that we're finally here, uh, psychoanalyzing the wards. Uh, I don't think I was alone, uh, among our, our listeners in, in being giddy when you mentioned very early on that these people need therapy <laughs> and now we're actually seeing that and it's, and it's better than we could have even hoped for. Yeah. I got a lot of notifications on Twitter, um, of people saying they had been waiting for this since I offhandedly said, Hey, get therapy people. Um, mm -hmm. not knowing that this, I had no idea we were going to actually get this. It's so, uh, kind of shocking to me that in the middle of the story, we're going to stop to get this kind of interlude. But it's the depth of it is is fantastic. And as you know, I love the wards. I love what they represent and I love what they're trying to do, uh, despite the, the, all the hopelessness of their situation. So spending more time with them here and getting to understand and know them better always makes me happy. So uh, I'm in the bag for this completely. Yeah. So so as as we've talked about, she begins by asking kind of uh, what what he wants to be called. And and Clockblocker, who who is our, as we kind of know, he's our he's our sarcastic, um, in a certain sense, laid back guy. Uh, he he answers uh, Clockblocker, Dennis, whatever. You get crucified, drawn, and quartered if you betray our secret identities, right? Um, which, for one thing, points out um, the fact that he's actually just indifferent toward what he's called. Uh, but as as a second thing, this crucified, drawn, and quartered thing. Um, immediately made me remember the horribly, uh, maimed, uh, dismembered victims of the nine that were strung up against the walls in the, uh, in the abandoned building. And I'm like, Dennis, you're, you're scarred. You're, <laughs> you're subconsciously scarred by that. And now you're, you're no, recapitulating that no. now. He's, he's doing fine, Matt. He's, <laughs> he's fine. Yeah. I do like that. It gets back to that name thing we were talking about earlier. And I think this says something very specific about Dennis. It, he doesn't care. To Dennis, the names are just labels, and the only thing that matters here is the consequences. As uh, as Yamada specifically notes here, to Dennis, consequences matter, not the thing itself. Uh, he doesn't care as long as as long as the person who betrays any kind of trust behind that code name uh, has some sort of sort of consequence. And I think that is not only does that line up to the Dennis conversation we had between him and, and Taylor uh, last arc or last. Uh, section um but it kind of 
d- creates Dennis as this natural foil to Taylor because like Taylor is all about the thing and the consequences are kind of secondary with Dennis. Like the thing is not important. It's just, it just matters how it affects everything else. And I, I love that. I love it so much. Yeah. With, with Taylor, I would, I would characterize it as being about intention. Um, she's, yeah. yeah. She's, al- she's always thinking about like why she's doing something and, and her best intentions that she has in mind. Um, and often completely ignorant of the consequences, which is the one thing the clock blocker tries to emphasize to her yeah. when he talks to her. You're right. Yeah. So, so Dennis is his, his usual self. He's sarcastic, um, but he's increasingly burdened by the tragedies that surround him. Uh, mainly the pain of the people that he cares about, like his dad's sickness, shadow stalkers, downfall, the deaths of his friends by Leviathan. Um, and, and he, and he says, it's, I feel like there's probably a word in another language, but English doesn't have it. Not despair, but that feeling you get when you're losing. Yeah, I, I literally sat here for a good five minutes trying to see if I could come up with a good word for what he's describing. And I, I couldn't get it. I mean, you could say melancholy. Um, you can say like he's despondent. I think they kind of work. Um, but those are just also really close to despair. So I, I, I don't I think he's right. I don't think there's a word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, but but you know what he means. It's it's a very specific yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we learn that he's been using some coping strategies to deal with his anger. He's been learning them from his other therapist, and we learned that he regrets joining the wards, which is kind of a big, um, kind of a shock on some level. Um, it, it's it's the bureaucracy, the limitations that that he's he's burdened under that the villains don't have to abide by. Um, and, and he just doesn't understand how they get away with this shit. And Dr. Yamada can't answer him, but she tells him to look out for opportunities to get the answer. If only there were some opportunity for him to confront one of these villains face to face and ask them these questions. Hmm. When would that happen? Uh, we talked last week about how much Wild Bo was having fun with dramatic irony and it continues here as well. Um, and now we understand Dennis, why he needed to question Skitter, why he pushed for it, even though he knew he would get in trouble. It adds so much clarity to the conversation and almost serves to like recontextualize it with his end goal in mind. And, mm-hmm. and I wonder knowing what we know about the source of the arguments in his hand and the fact that, um, at least in Taylor's mindset, he made a lot of good points that kind of shook her. Do you think Dennis was satisfied with the answers he got from her? I mean, I'm certain that he wasn't like fully satisfied. I, I think, I think that he might have, like, if if anything in that conversation that I walked away with, I felt like he got a sense of her as like a human being. Because one thing that you get from him and, and you get from these other wards is that they see Skitter as this <laughs> insidious, like, 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 just creature. Um, and I think it might've actually really helped that she didn't have her bugs on her in that scene. And she's just a girl in a costume sitting in a room, sitting in a van with him. Um, and, and maybe he got to see her as a, as a human. Maybe that helped him. Um, I don't know. I mean, it would have, it would be, I, I literally, I honestly don't remember if like what kind of follow-up we get here. I I hope, um, I I hope that we get like more perspective from him on, uh, on what that meant to him. I don't don't recall right now. Yeah. Um, I was trying to get you to spoil it for me, but you did. good job. You did well. Yeah. I can always just say that I don't remember something. That's a good trick that I employ. Oh, you bastard. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. So, yeah. So next up, um, I think the next day, I think, is Weld. 
Um, and he comes in and he's being weld and she wants him to pick a name, a normal like American name, but he's, he's just fine being weld. Yeah. And again, following our, our theme of names here, weld has no alternate identity. He has nothing else but being weld. Uh, Cauldron took his life away from him and Jessica being her wonderful self here is trying to take a name for her to stick get him to take a name for herself to become a human being to become more than just weld uh but he either just doesn't want to or he can't um he just like can't engage with that yeah i wonder if i'm like projecting a little bit or, or something but like i feel like weld like in order to come to terms with being who and what he is he's he's kind of had to um bury a lot of the pain that comes with being in his situation and asking him to take a normal name is is kind of exposing that that wound again um and he's like no you know what i'm i'm fine i'm fine this way i'm just we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna entertain that kind of thing um i don't know if that's yeah well i mean a lot into it and, and and there's there's a certain level of like if you never allow yourself to engage with your human side then you can't be disappointed ever like no. so like he he knows how people view him as this kind of monstrous case 53 and he's he's accepted that and gotten used to that but the, the minute you start trying to be human and someone calls you out on your lack of humanity then it stings cuz you're mm -hmm. you're trying yeah that's that's true yeah yeah so he's down about the fact that he feels the PRT is abandoning Rockton Bay they've lost a lot of a lot of capes as we know uh, which is a big blow um, by itself. And then those people aren't being replaced, which makes the situation worse. And, uh, you know, to a degree, he's also worried about his, his own career and, and how that's not looking very promising right now. Yeah. And it's very fitting that he is really the only one that brings up his career as a superhero out of all the wards that Jessica talks to. Um, and I, I don't say this as like an insult. It's just really, it's all he has. He doesn't have that human side. There is no human, there is no non code name. So, his career is everything literally yeah right that's he, he he is weld yeah he's he is he is the prt cape weld yeah um but before we can get too deep into weld unfortunately his phone rings and we start to get a sense of where we are in time because uh next up immediately next up is flechette and she's pissed off because parian has just been suborned by the undersiders yeah, and I love that Weld not getting to complete his therapy fits into everything we've said already because he gets pulled out of this session because of his job, because Weld doesn't have time for mental health. Weld doesn't have time to be a human being. Weld is Weld 24-7, so mm -hmm. he gets pulled out. And they even hit that beat again where he has to reschedule uh, his therapy session later that they mentioned that offhand, um, mm -hmm. and I love that. Like, he just, like, this, he doesn't have time. He can't, like, it, it's, it's not possible. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that observation. So yeah, like I said, next up, same day, uh, Lily Flechette comes in, um, and she has to be calmed down because she's, she's raging, um, about, about what just happened with, uh, with Perian. And she admits, uh, to Dr. Yamada that she still hasn't told Saba about her feelings for her. Um, by the time she got up the courage to ask about it, the nine had murdered most of Perrion's family and friends and turned the rest into decoys. I, I mentioned this uh, while I was live tweeting, but it's this really kind of like it's so disturbing that it almost makes you laugh in kind of a dark comedy way because like she's like talking about like, 
yeah, and I just didn't know if she felt the same way. And then, like, I was going to ask her, but then her whole family was horribly murdered and disfigured, so you can't ask someone then. And it's just, like, this completely, like, typical, like, crush conversation <laughs> placed into this world of death and, and horribleness. It, yeah. And it's just, like, the juxtaposition is so most, so shocking that you just laugh at it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I do like that as as black humor. Yeah. Um, um, and and I, uh, to to continue our name theme, I did want to point out that uh, she's never referred to as Flechette throughout this entire chapter. She's Lily from the beginning to the end. Um, and notice that all of the problems Lily's talking about here are human ones, mostly centering around her feelings for for Perry. And again, this is intentional. How we're framing these characters through their names is an intentional tool um, to to show where they are as people. Yeah, th- that's right. Um, yeah, so in the course of this, she focuses a lot on her, uh, on her, uh, her anger at Skitter, mentioning how Skitter slithers in past her defenses by sounding idealistic and naive. Um, and she has with her, uh, her satchel containing the armband that Skitter told her, uh, where to find the, the, the one that, uh, arms master shorted out. Yeah. And I, I actually forgot that that's what that was. And there was part of me that was like, what's in the satchel? Is this going to be a mystery? And then I on my second read through, I was like, Oh yeah, it's that thing. And of course she hasn't looked at it yet. She, she like hasn't worked up the courage to look at it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, we're not going to read it, but her description, both physically and just of like Taylor's ideology is so amazing. <laughs> I love it so much. Like I, the, the part I like is like, like something's wrong with their eye and your own eye starts watering when looking at her like that's such a wonderful description <laughs> it's so great and yeah and like this idea of taylor being seen as creepy on the outside idealistic and naive on the inside is just taylor i mean that's like and i think this ties into the important thing about her is that she's never kind of like kraus in this she's never purposefully trying to manipulate people by lying or anything it just kind of ends up that way like, because when she talks to people, she is being 100% earnest because she is idealistic. She is naive. And she does wholeheartedly believe the things that she's saying, even when they come off as kind of uh, disturbing sometimes or or inaccurate or off base or or influenced by her own brand of, of trauma related issues. Like she believes the thing she says. And you can understand why everyone's just so confused by her when she talks like this. Yeah, right. I mean, essentially, when when what she's saying boils down to, uh, you know, everything would be fine if everyone would just listen to me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah. So, okay. Um, at this point, Lily cries on Dr. Yamada's shoulder, uh, but the hug is, is interrupted by her phone ringing. Again, we have a, a meeting interrupted. And, uh, and this time it's Miss Militia. Uh, Dr. Yamada answers actually because Lily can't, uh, informing us that Skitter, once again, uh, has put Triumph in the hospital. <laughs> Just great timing. Right after we talk about how she can't understand this idealistic supervillain, uh, she called to let her know that I, I'd like this beat because they don't even say it's Skitter. Um, they just say what happened to Triumph, and Lily is immediately like, Skitter? Like, she just knows. Mm-hmm. Um the beat I really like here, though, is when we see Lily basically transform literally back into Flechette. Uh, she straightens up, she dries her eyes out, and, and there is, quote, wasn't a trace of the emotion she'd shown just moments before. Um, it's a really small but powerful beat. And you see that Jessica is heartbroken 
by this that that Lily is not allowed to be Lily. Um, that that in the moment of working through her problems, she has to just put them away and become this cape again. And and it, it's reinforcement, Matt, that these powers, this, this being a cape, just perpetuates this trauma. That it doesn't let these people ever get better. Um, and their powers or or their passengers uh, won't let them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, like you said, uh, Dr. Yamada is, is conscious of this too. She's not, she doesn't want to just let this slide. And yeah. she, she, she calls, she calls Miss Militia and she says, uh, yes, I, I just, I've seen half your wards today. They aren't doing well. I know, Miss Militia said. They're losing faith. I know. Um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And, and Miss Militia being who she is, like we have to believe she, she sees the problem that this is just as much as Dr. Yamada does. But since she herself is a cape, she's presumably been dealing with this type of thing for, I don't know, I don't know how old she is, but you know, 10 years, I, I would estimate. Right. Um, yeah. Something like that. Um, and, and it's the, yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. Like I don't, I, there, there's no solution to this problem. Like the city, like there's so much going on that they're constantly being pulled into that these therapy sessions on their own are not enough. It's just not enough. So there's just, you're just in this moment of absolute hopelessness. And the Mm -hmm. fact that Jessica continues to strive to help these people through this hopelessness is really what makes her heroic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So next we get kid win. Um, he, he comes in favorite buddy. Yeah. Our, our, he really won us over. Um, so he, he doesn't really get the point of therapy. And, and he says, uh, all my problems so far, they've stemmed from me trying to fit myself into everyone else's mold. It's only when I broke away from that, started thinking on my own, that things started to make sense. All the pieces of the machine working in unison. Yeah. Um, so obviously, once again, he's referred to as himself by Kid Wynn. He's fully identifying as his cape side. We don't even hear uh, his real name, which I do remember what his real name is. I don't. No, I'm, I'm spacing right now. Yeah. Um, but I, again, I think that fits into what he's kind of saying here that uh, he has dove into his work and he's satisfied because he's finally successful in his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he admits that he's actually happier now with the city in shambles and he doesn't want to be talked out of it. Uh, and, and then he kind of, you know, fairly rudely puts on headphones and kicks back uh, to basically just work on his tinker stuff uh, instead of proceed with the therapy. Um I'm not really sure what direction to take this in, actually. Yeah, I think there's two possible interpretations of what's going on here. One is that, is that he's being completely 100% sincere here, that ever since he had that talk with Legend, he's refocused himself and, and discovered how to fully use his form of the Tinker Power and has thus managed to solve his issues, the, the things that were making him insecure and and were causing him pain. And then, therefore, while everyone else is falling apart, that trauma doesn't represent itself in him because his trauma stems from being incompetent, which uh, he seems to have cured. Um, that's, like, to me, a little too good to be true. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's that, like based on everything else we've seen. So I think the other is that this is just, you know, classic deflection and avoidance. He's refusing to deal with his issues and just coping by diving into his work. And as long as he can be Kid Win, as long as he doesn't have to stop being Kid Win. He's fine. And I think that I, that sounds more real to me, but I don't know if I'm getting that through textual evidence or just what what I want it to be. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd say I'd say that there's some combination of the two, and and I can actually identify with this quite a bit. Like, there were there were times in my life where um, I wasn't having the best time, and and I realized that diving into my work at that time happened to be just a wonderful reprieve because mm-hmm. when you're working really hard and your work is going well you get you're you're rewarded by it in a way that maybe other aspects of your personal life aren't rewarding you um so so it's like you're you're getting you're getting a kind of uh positive feedback a kind of confidence um a kind of self-esteem even from the work and it is genuine but right. it is not it is not a kind it is not a holistic healthful psychological approach because yeah ultimately you're doing it to paper over a delinquency somewhere else in your in your you know mental hygiene um so so that that actually makes perfect sense to me that he's that that pep talk from legend did work he is more confident now he is being a more successful tinker he's making more things you know we've seen every time we've seen him almost he has like some new cool thing um but but he's doing that at, at the expense maybe of of a more kind of um holistic i guess uh approach to to keeping his head on his shoulders yeah i think that sounds that sounds right and i think that ties into all the name stuff we've been talking about is the name is what name they choose is a symbol of that and i think that's important yeah he's he's kid win he's uh he's he he has to be kid win you know he has to be yeah um okay so next we have uh vista the next day on saturday uh, Vista enters her office and then struggles to get comfortable in a chair, uh, which is overlarge for her 12 year old body. Yeah, I mentioned this on Twitter, but I, I wanted to bring it up again here. Uh, Wildbo is really good. And we've talked about this before, but he's he's really good at taking every possible moment he has to characterize. And and I think this is a, a real like common writing lesson that every beat can be a character beat uh, if mm-hmm. you use it properly. And so this is a tiny little beat, just a little girl who can't get comfortable in a chair. But in this case, it, it tells or reminds us of Vista's most basic insecurity. Her most basic problem is that she's perpetually afraid uh, that she's being judged as lesser because of her age, that she's not being taken seriously, that she's treated as the kid, the child, the one that that is different from all the rest. Um, and and that like that's all there in that one little beat of her getting trying to get comfortable in a a big chair Mm -hmm. yep it's it's so good it's so good and then we go back to our name thing again um vista like i think it says something too when when we hear that they're offered a choice like kid win just walked in and said i'm kid win there was never a choice what do you want me to call you here uh jessica specifically says should i call you missy or vista and of course vista chooses vista um because she doesn't like (laughs) missy is such a perfect name for her it it fits into her childish uh like concern so much because it, it it's this kind of pet kind of nickname like it's infantilizing a little bit um i and i don't there might be some adults out there named missy who i just (laughs) insulted but it just seems like a childish name to me so of course she's going to choose vista of course that's the one she's going to pick mm-hmm. yeah and and she she wants to project this image of of being the, the strong competent kate yeah. who doesn't need to to hide behind her civilian identity she's she's uh trying to project that right. like always right um yeah so she's uh 
she she from the beginning is preoccupied with the idea that Dr. Yamada can't really understand what it's like for the wards because she doesn't live in Brockton Bay. Yeah, and it, it's a, a fair point, but I love uh, Yamada's response here that it doesn't really matter if she understands what it's like out there. All that matters is that she understands what's going on through Vista's head in this moment and and that the only way she can really understand that is if the Vista opens up to her and talks about it and and that works it gets Vista to open up a little yeah yeah um and and she does take a really excellent approach here she, she kind of has to work her way toward it um but basically Dr. Yamada gets her to to tell about how she's been trying to help the other wards with their problems and she often can't and uh, Jessica asks if she feels like a field therapist. And at first, Vista finds this condescending because she pretty much finds everything condescending. Yeah. Um, but eventually, she opens up and admits that she's trying to be the team's heart, like Weld said all those arcs ago. Yeah. And and that condescending beat, um, to me, that was absolutely projection that she was putting that on Jessica. That Jessica, in no way, I don't think there's any contextual evidence, in my opinion, that says that Jessica is speaking to her in a childish manner. Um, I don't, I don't know if you agree or not, but uh, I mean, I think that she's just speaking to her using like the therapeutical, um, right. paradigm of, of, of n- n- minimizing, injecting her own opinions and just kind of asking questions and yeah. leading the other person to, to make their own discoveries, uh, which can come off as condescending. Um, especially if you're specifically tuned to it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I can see that. So, so <laughs> I just, I had to pull this, this out cause this is Vista, telling us all of the all of the things that have happened and she's saying it's it's like a series of hammer blows it's he just died gallant died battery died velocity died dauntless died browbeat left arms master retired and shadow stalker went to jail and now even after it's all over triumph gets hurt um and like like when you just say it out like that you're like i'm not even sure if i could handle the story if it were from the perspective of a ward it's too sad yeah, and and for me, this was the first time that I fully got uh, Clockblocker's frustration because our, the heroes are ostensibly the good guys, right? But mm-hmm. they're the ones that keep suffering the consequences of everyone else's actions. Because how mm-hmm. many undersiders are dead? How many travelers are dead? Yeah, who's the one instigating all the violence? Who's the one instigating all the actions? And who are the ones suffering for it? And you, you see this when you list all these things; it's incredible. Yeah, right. I mean, I I don't know if we've ever speaking of the name game. I don't know if we've ever talked about the the name the wards because it's um, that's another word that has multiple meanings. Obviously, like like to ward something is to is to protect something, and you can view them as protectors. But I don't think that's the primary meaning. I think the primary meaning is that they're the wards in the sense that Robin is Batman's ward. They're they are under the protection of the of the adult capes. Um, yeah. so, so, so to list off all these, all these heroes being, being dead or, 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 um, you know, otherwise unfortunate, um, some of them being wards, some of them being, being the heroes, it's, it's, uh, it, I don't know, for some reason when you, when you, when I viewed it in context of like, these, these are the, this is the, um, what is it? These are the teen Titans. Like these aren't even the, yeah. this isn't even the big leagues and they're suffering these horrible losses. It's, it's just, it really, um, I don't know. I, I, this quote where she, where she pulls out, where she just lists all the dead is just really, just really hits me for some reason. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think the fact that 
she's not differentiating between a ward name and a full-on protectorate name is telling mm-hmm. is that they're they're not really wards anymore this these mm-hmm. are just the heroes now and they all have share at an adult level responsibility and a lot of them are still children and mm-hmm. it's easy to forget that because the, the situation demands that we ignore it because they need them that there's just not enough people and they need them and it's destroying these kids yeah 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 so so part of uh, part of missy wants to keep the team together but right. another part knows that that won't happen that more people will die um and she says that part is okay with it because essentially i mean she's not really but she says she is she, she's wrapped up in it uh she's wrapped up in in this like nihilism surrounding the pending end of the world um and and that's that's just the way the world works she thinks um that she's she's sure that she's going to die too everybody's going to die so why why worry about it and we're playing with dramatic irony again here a little bit right because we know mm-hmm. the, the current uh present day situation vista in is that she's captured and being forced to be a cloning machine for noel um first we thought she was dead and now she's just being used to spawn these terrible clones um but she still might end up dead at the end of this whole thing so while her nihilism is is absolutely concerning and and depressing it's maybe not too far off is it yeah um it's 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 just not uh it's just not healthy (laughs) and and, definitely not yeah but but i mean you're you're right that it's not a, it, it, it's very understandable. Um, yeah. So, so Dr. Yamada tells her that she'll give her some tools, uh, that she can use to help with her field therapy. And, uh, since, and I get, I get the sense at this point that Vista actually feels like she's being respected, uh, by this offer. So she accepts the help. Yeah. And, and I want to focus for a second on just how fucking good of a therapist Yamada is here mm-hmm. because this is this poor damaged girl that's that's actually very difficult to read and and, and Yamada immediately diagnoses the problem that Vista feels marginalized she feels like the kid of the group and everyone talks down to her so how do you treat that well you make someone feel as if they are not that you make someone feel as if they're contributing so she 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 pushes towards Vista's active role in the group and she pivots away from the nihilism and towards that um, it, you, you pivot to talk to her about better ways in which she can be the therapist of the group in which she can be the heart of the group and it works and it, it pushes Vista towards that, that little tinge of hope at, at the end of her section. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to be a nihilist when you're trying to help other people. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the next section is actually the next, the next day. Uh, and Jessica is woken in the middle of the night and called in to the uh, to the to the hospital, and then that's that's practically practically all that really happens, uh, other than getting a description of what her what her living situation is like and how kind uh, of um, <laughs> depressing it is. Yeah, and it's it's so depressing. It's like the little beats that she's got a pizza box on her nightstand, so she's eating in bed. The fact that she was only wearing pants to answer the door to get the pizza. Um, like her entire life is just these kids. She eats in bed. She works in bed. She never takes off. She's always there. And you kind of get in this moment that it's as it's destroying these kids, what they're having to go through. This is kind of destroying her, but yeah. she keeps doing it. She keeps trying. And that is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, this is great, great, great interlude. So next day, um, 
she's she's in Brockton Bay, but there's nobody to help because the wards are too busy dealing with the aftermath of the bombing at uh, at the mayoral debate. Yeah, and I think this this is a good time to get to one of the overall great ways in which this interlude works. Um, We're seeing from someone else's perspective, every single one of Skidder's successes. Like we're seeing all of her wins. Every time she does good, every time she makes a choice and something happens, we're seeing all of this from the perspective of the people that are actually suffering the consequences from it. Um, And it's, it's so great because we had this whole part where, where Clockbacker was talking to her about how you you don't see the consequences. You don't stick around long enough to see what your actions actually do to the people around you. And as if as if to confirm that, here they are. And like Taylor made these choices and, and the people she cares about come out on top in the end. But we don't see the real cost of that. We don't see what it's doing to these kids. And that's kind of we're seeing like an abridged fast forwarded version of everything that Taylor's gone through throughout the last few weeks from a different perspective. And it's a horrible one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And we, we finally really get to feel it because even, you know, she, she let herself feel bad about almost killing triumph for about 10 seconds. And then she kind of <laughs> distracted herself Shoved in that compartment. Right. Um, and, and here we're, we're shown, I think it's, uh, it, it's kind of a dramatic trick that I'm that I'm learning that the power of is you can make you can make somebody feel um, you can make somebody feel feel something a lot better not by showing it to them but by showing the suffering that that it causes in other people around that person. Uh, so, so what I mean specifically is like you can show me triumph, you know, almost dying of anaphylaxis, um, but it actually pulls the heartstrings more if you show Flechette. Um, freaking out about the fact that her teammate is, is, is potentially dying. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's, that connects it better, I think on an empathic level. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So, and, and that's, again, that's the technique that's being employed over and over again here. I think like, mm-hmm. like you pointed out, it's, it's where we really get to, to both see and feel the consequences of her actions. So, uh, the subsequent day, uh, you get the sense Jessica hasn't really been able to help anybody very much. Uh, but she's she's kind of worn thin regardless, and she's she's smoking on top of of the roof, um, I guess, of the headquarters. Um, and Idolin appears behind her, and he asks for a moment of her time. Um, and and it, there's there's this moment here where she thinks um, she she felt a pang of sympathy for her wards, and I had to pull that out because it's at this point it's her wards, not not the wards. Jessica is the best. She's so great. Yeah. What a what a wonderful heartbreaking beat. It's, yeah, I know. Yeah. It's I love that so much. Yeah. So she's uh, she's so caught up with sympathy uh, in what her wards are going through uh, that she isn't sure in this moment if she can offer them objective therapy. But Idolin is here, and he's not one of the wards. And frankly, he's it's a very different matter with him. So he sits beside her, and he takes off his mask, showing his average, slightly ugly middle-aged face and uh she's overwhelmed by the power of his presence by the by the danger inherent in in what he is uh, which i think is interesting because that's not something that skitter really dwells on when she's around yeah idolin specifically and really whoever she's around she's so used to um she's so used to being around 
and and not only being around but fighting these people that she doesn't feel intimidated by it um but but yeah the doctor the doctor uh dr yamada thinks of idolin as a monster she i think she uses that word in, in her mind uh which yeah. is which is very reminiscent of what some of our other non-cape povs like Bigo have thought about capes in general yeah not only does she use the word monster but she specifically calls back to her conversation with sveta where she mm-hmm. she thought uh, i'm not scared by you because i've seen real monsters and here's the most powerful superhero in the world uh, outside of scion standing in front of her and she says monster and mm-hmm. and of course she's speaking generally right um that he's got this monstrous power um but he's on the good side but he's over like other uh, almost otherworldly and not quite human but it's also kind of perceptive because he's he's a cauldron guy and he's working for this group that we keep hitting these beats about how terrible they are and what they did to the to poor sveta who uh, she cares about so much um and and what they they stole weld's human name like there's a, a kind of a, a complete circle here so she's calling him monstrous generally but the truth is is even worse than she knows yeah right and and not only so not not quite that extreme but like even even the way he behaves is very subtly um inhuman and, and just like aloof like like skipping ahead a couple beats he um he says like i used i used a power to see into in, into the last few days of your life to get an understanding of who you are and it's like dear god that's like the most invasive I know, thing yeah. imaginable and he and he just does it he does it very casually he does it with the same degree of disregard that he like sets up that force field in, in the last arc in the, the, the last uh, half arc where he almost starts a fight and and like he, there's an argument that he just didn't even think about it he's just like i'm just gonna set up yeah. this force field now because uh i don't care I, I don't care if i make other people uncomfortable um he's he can afford to think that way it's it's yeah. uh, it's kind of the you know um absolute it, power it's corrupting. dr manhattan-esque right the, mm-hmm. you get to a, a certain level of power and you're so far above everyone else that you stop being able to relate to them on a human level so you just don't consider that kind of stuff anymore we saw a little bit of that from alexandria yeah um and, and she has that that thinker power where she remembers things and she thinks better and, and she has that invulnerability that sets her apart from people but idolin like he has essentially whatever he needs at the moment. And that must yeah. just really warp your way of thinking after a while. And Yeah. And to go back to that beat of, of looking in her past too, not only is it an invasion of her privacy, but her past few days have been her talking with these wards. So mm-hmm. it's an incredible invasion of these kids privacy and their personal therapy sessions. It's like, it's so invasive and terrible to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't, I, I think I might have noticed that the first time I read this and, and then I, I, I missed it this time through. But you're absolutely right. That's cl- clearly he says the last few days, which completely encompasses all of these therapy, all these private, yeah. painful therapy sessions. That I we've mean, seen. you could argue that the entirety of this interlude is just Idolin's looking at her last few days. <laughs> and that's the structure behind it. Yeah, that that's really interesting. And, and also, I mean, that that makes a lot of sense. And you could also say that, like one purpose for arranging things this way is to dose idolin with this with this information about how the wards are doing um and and just the the pain of all of that so that that's kind of festering in his mind yeah um and that that kind of 
encourages him to act even more recklessly than he was already planning. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, potentially, yeah. Yeah, so to go kind of back on track, uh, he the, the reason why he's talking to her is that, uh, as we know, his, his powers are weakening day by day. And when he, and, and when he can't stand, stand up to the Endbringers, only Scion will really be left as an effective counterforce. Um, but when he's fighting a serious threat, he feels that there's some source of more power within reach. And he wants to fight Noel today because he's desperate to tap into that. And he feels confident that even if things go south, the situation with Noel could be resolved with a missile strike, uh, which is just what Brockton Bay needs right now. Oh, my God. This so this whole part you just read has the distinct pleasure of making me both really sad and really angry at the same time, because uh-huh. I think you're sad for Idolan, who who's like his burden as the second most powerful person in the world is rivaled only by our, our boy Kevin. And mm-hmm. so, like, he has this huge burden on him and that he so defined his life by Idolin to go back to our whole name thing we've been talking about all chapter that 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 he's he's defined that as his entire life, that if he loses his power, then life just isn't worth living anymore. Um, and that's so sad and that you you feel for him in that moment. But, of course, I'm also angry. I'm angry that that in this this recklessness, he's going to put his city, his wards uh, innocent people in harm's way and he seems to not care about the consequences of those actions uh just just the actions themselves just the end result um mm-hmm. and and that's not good matt mm-hmm. best intentions scott yeah yeah uh, so we're, we're at the end of the section now and we've we're an hour and 10 minutes into the podcast and i i love that we spent this time on this because I, I loved it so much and I think there's even more here. There's more that we could do if we wanted to. I think we need to move on. But um, I, I feel that this is a part of the book I'm going to come back to again and again as we move forward, um, that I'm going to constantly be checking back and referencing what we learned here and what this part of the story did for us and what it set up uh, either obviously or, or more slyly. Um, and Jessica Yamada, man, she's mm-hmm. the best of us. She's the best of everyone. She's like... Out of all the humans we've seen in this this book so far, she is the most heroic one. Yeah, that's interesting. We didn't get any kind of like, you know, terrible secret that she's right, right. that she's holding on to. And and yeah, just just to reflect your your comment that like I'm uh, I'm glad that we actually spent that much time on that because I don't know I don't know if I ever like say this out loud, but like fundamentally the reason why I you know enjoy this project and, and other projects that, that we do like this is that I'm I'm like studying works of art that I really like in order to figure out how they work and, and why they work and to to learn their tricks to, to learn the storytelling craft and this this chapter is just so rich with little little uh, you know bits of of writing machinery that can be analyzed that yeah. it absolutely merits an hour of of uh, of detailed discussion. And the thing is that, I mean, if you, I can't say this for sure, but I think if you look back on this chapter, you could probably completely remove it, and it wouldn't damage any of the overall storytelling. Of course, I, I don't know that for sure, but it seems like it's kind of that chapter where all this really does is help you recontextualize and redefine characters. We're not really learning anything story wise new. Um, we're just spending time with characters. So the fact that it's here is, is 
showing to me what the true purpose of the book is, what what Bilbo wants to do. It's not just about these big action sequences, not just about fighting and superpowers. It's about people and what people are going through and what this world does to people. Yeah. And it's not just about Taylor. It's it's about all these people. And, And, you know, there's we get relatively few, you know, bits of the, you know, clock blocker story. But I, I do think that the book would be harmed, for example, like in, in terms of giving, I'm just taking him as an example, like his narrative would be kind of missing a piece, I think, if you if you took this out. Um, yeah. yeah. Maybe you would have to come in later. But yeah, it's, it's uh, like you said, it's the one of the main strengths of Worm is this this ensemble way of telling the story. Yeah, absolutely. So let's unfortunately leave it behind and get yep. to the, the rest of the arc. Yeah. Which is which is some badass combat mostly. So we get into eighteen point seven, and we cut right back to Idolin, who we were just with, um, as Skidder listens in on his conversation with Noel. He's telling her that Coyle was involved with Cauldron and that Cauldron is responsible for Noel. Called it. Just want to put that here. I called mm-hmm. that. Yep. <laughs> um, or so Idolin claims. How would he know? Um, so. <laughs> So it, it seems that Idolin is offering help, but Noel doesn't seem to believe the offer. Um, and she says that she wants to die. And he says that he's ready to die, too. Oh, good. We have two suicidal, superpowered individuals. This will go well and, and no one will suffer at all. It's going to be great. Yeah, sure. It's going to be great. Yeah, this, this, this will be a nice, clean, nice, clean fight. Uh, she reveals that they're surrounded by her clones, which had been sort of hiding in nearby surfaces using a Vista spinoff power. Elite with a tinker made gun is setting up in a building behind Idolin and it looks like he's going to get the drop on him. Is is this the first time in Worm that Leet was an actual threat? Is this it? I mean, it's probably because he's he doesn't have his, his filters on. He's just evil now. <laughs> yeah. I bet Leet would actually be really, really effective if he just were pure evil. But the Undersiders <laughs> uh plus the two Chicago wards who they're with um argue about whether to intervene. Uh, the undersiders want to step in now, but the wards want to hold off um, to avoid messing up whatever Idolin's plan is and be ready to kill any Idolin clones that might pop up if he gets if he gets uh, touched. It's, they don't really know how she works quite yet. Uh, Skidder starts using her power uh, to try to disable Leet's gun um, while Noel and Idolin stall in their conversation. Uh, and they're stalling because Idolin is waiting for his powers to charge up and Noel is waiting for Leet to shoot him. Yeah, this is I really like this beat a lot. It's really fantastically done because we're about to kick everything into high gear. But we pause for this moment of tension building as uh, two of the most powerful beings basically just stare each other down, waiting for the right moment to attack. It's this, this, mm-hmm. this tension building face off moment. And it's really good. Yeah. yeah. So the Leet clone tries to fire, but Skidder has done enough damage to make the weapon backfire. Even his clone, still useless. <laughs> so Idolin opens with an attack that shakes the ground where the Undersiders are sitting in the van. Um, Skidder can't really perceive what's going on other than that most of her bugs in the area die instantly. Um, and the Ubers and Circus clones are pulverized against the ground. And essentially everything in the area is just crushed. And eventually we kind of get that this is some kind of gravity attack. Um, but... While Skidder doesn't really notice anything, Tattletail is suddenly panicked and is saying, did he, did he hit Imp? Uh, we just sent Imp in there. Uh, and it's this unusual moment of intensity from Tattletail. 
Yeah, and I, I got to thinking, I wonder if this ties into the source of Tattletail's trauma. Because um, we know how concerned she's always gets for Taylor's safety. And we've never seen her really uh, do that with anyone else. Um, and, and I made a big speculation about the, the root behind that is. But I wonder if it's a signal that Lisa has brought Aisha into that kind of inner circle and occupy that same I am seriously worried for you thing. Because um, we haven't seen that before. Yeah, I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely going to hold that as probably the, the most likely explanation for now. Um, yeah. And so another thing about this moment with with Aisha being being missing is that this is the first time that I can recall where we missed the scene that we sort of normally would have gotten regarding Imp. Like normally we see the interaction with Imp and then Taylor forgets it and we don't forget it. <laughs> and and, and or, or sometimes at least like it's worked around in a way where it's not quite this uh, on the nose. Um, this time we didn't see it at all. Yeah. And and I'm okay with it though. It's a logical extension of imps awesome power that allows us to build and release tension without masking it in any kind of artificial fake way. And it, it, yeah. it works. It always works. She's a great plot device to build tension. It's really, it's really clever actually. Yeah. And uh, I just realized Scott, she may actually be so powerful at this point in the story uh, that we did actually read about the part where she left uh, the undersiders in the van. Oh my god! And uh, yeah, I mean, maybe that's right there on the page. I I don't I don't know what to do. <laughs> you could go back and check, but it wouldn't matter. It, it, we just forget about it again. Let's just move on. This is freaking me out. <laughs> um, okay, so Noel doesn't seem to be enjoying the gravity attack very much, uh, but she is able to walk through it despite the damage she's taking. Imp sneaks up on the leet with the gun and she cuts his throat, which confuses Idolan quite a bit, uh, but he gets over it. He's probably used to crazy shit like this happening. The leet falls off of the building, uh, dragging his massive gun with him, which explodes enormously on impact with the ground. Uh, Idolan then chases Noel as she moves away at high speed, moving more by massive strength and redundancy than agility like a rhino. So the undersiders make their way up uh, the the building to recover imp uh, everything has been kind of shattered by the explosion and uh, skitter perceives that noel is able to produce more circus clones despite not being in contact with circus and uh, none of the undersiders are really sure why this is at first did you have a thought at this point yeah i mean i, I kind of guess she was storing them somewhere somehow i i didn't think she was literally eating them <laughs> and keeping them in a clone producing tummy sack which is what ends up happening but I think she was just like shoving them somewhere in her mass and then just making them touch her every time she needed a new one was my assumption. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the reality is much cooler and grosser. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember what I thought, but yeah. So they, they find Imp and she's she's kind of out of sorts. She, she's got a blown eardrum. Uh, Gru verifies that she doesn't have a head injury and then gives her a thump on the head, which I think is a nice sibling moment between them. Yeah. And it feels like a kind of a little mini moment of growth from Gru too um because he's still of course always going to be his overprotective brother it's just who he is but in the past he would have like really lost his shit and like screamed at her and chastised her and belittled her this time he kind of just thumps her on the head and is like hey obey orders like you, you feel kind of like a level of respect there now like she's proved himself proved herself uh so capable that he respects her on some level yeah, I, I like that a lot. And I actually think there might be a moment of growth from Imp in that she doesn't react to his his little brotherly thump by taking umbrage. 
and and getting offended she's she's just like ow ow stop that i yeah. I, I i made the right call she just kind of confidently says I, I made the right call um yeah. and and so she's kind of finding a little bit of confidence maybe and uh, so yeah um yeah I, I think this is interesting because this is her taking the initiative again um she makes a good play and she she gets injured for it but it was kind of all she could do and uh nobody nobody gives her credit yeah, she's really crazy powerful. And and we've seen this kind of ramp up in usefulness over the course of the arc since she was introduced. But because she's the baby of the group, yeah, she gets no respect. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Skitter still, you know, keeping her bug eye on the fight reports that Idolin and Noel are dueling with Noel. Uh, and uh, uh, Noel's pasting her clones against adjacent surfaces when he attacks with the gravity hammer. Tekton lets us know that Idolin can pack three serious powers at a time. I'm not sure if we knew that necessarily. Uh, and it seems like he has flying, danger sense, and gravity manipulation. Though Tattletail suspects that the flying is part of gravity manipulation and he might also have some kind of power immunity. So Idolin is smashing down sky- skyscrapers left and right, just trying to get like a single circus clone here and there. Um, and, and, and then he keeps using the gravity to scrape all the bugs off of himself. And then he starts spiking bits of buildings into the air and then slamming them down at Noel. Yeah, it's almost as if he's like trying intentionally to go all out in order to force his body to tap into some deep well of power or something. Um, so <laughs> he's not killing anyone. I think they specifically mentioned that the buildings he's destroying are empty and he is using his danger sense power to be able to to know that or something. But this poor city, Matt, like Brockton Bay. Yeah. Is there any building standing in Brockton Bay left? Like it's gone through so much of the shit that just keeps happening. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I was in, I was like imagining this being in like a rundown part of town where there were no people. But then we fairly quickly get like corroboration that there are civilians kind of here and there that yeah. he's having to avoid. Um, so just imagine. I don't know. I always like to imagine living in this hellhole city and having yeah. things like this happen yeah. all the time. So uh, Noel spits out another leet and Vista clone and Skidder decides the priority is to make a perimeter around uh, the area and take out the clones. So she goes after elite clone with her bugs as he breaks into a clothing store and starts dressing himself because these things are being humanized and actually want to wear clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she realizes at this point that there are also clone rats running around. So she starts exterminating those as well. Who would have thought that that uh, freaky Skitter extermination service beat from arcs and arcs ago would pay off? <laughs> yeah, practice. So Noelle attacks a huddle of civilians in a building lobby, and she absorbs all of them, and then almost immediately, um, after after just a minute and a half, vomits out a mass of clones. Um, so so basically, eighteen and twenty people she vomits out, and about half of them are clones. Um, so the mutants immediately start wailing on the originals. And Skitter realizes that one of the people that's been vomited out is the original Vista. Um, and then Noelle hauls her back in, and we realize that, indeed, Noelle is keeping the originals so she can make in- endless numbers of clones. Yeah, I really hope that they're, like, unconscious when they're inside her tummies getting cloned. Um, I suspect we'll find out next week for a I reason s- that we'll get to. Yes, I suspect so as well. As the chapter wraps up, Skitter realizes that Noelle is also cloning bugs, um, which she can't sense or control. Yeah, this is a cool way to end the chapter, I think. And I think it makes sense as as she's using insects to 
figure out where she is. So they're touching her. She's absorbing them and making her own. So it does do kind of a good job of taking Skitter out of any direct conflict with Noelle because she really can't. But if I can offer a really minor complaint here, Matt, mm-hmm. um, the clone bugs never really pay off in that big of a moment, at least not yet. Um, the, the cliffhanger ending here seems to indicate that like the fact that there are cloned bugs that Skitter can't control is going to be this huge problem now. Uh, Taylor just kind of feels bad. And then in the next chapter, she just starts like systematically killing them with her own bugs. And it, it just never like pays off in a way that it seemed like it was going to. Yeah. Um, I think I feel you there. Um, I, I definitely, definitely expected there to be some like direct consequence. I mean, like the closest thing I think we get is that, um, I think there's an implication that the reason I don't keeps killing her bugs is that he's trying to kill the psychotic bugs that are, yeah. that are going after him. And she, she doesn't even realize that's happening. Yeah. But that doesn't um, have any kind of lasting yeah, effect on him. Right. It, other than maybe like interfering with her ability to perceive the battle, it doesn't seem yeah. to, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, we may, we, we may get something in the next arc where that actually matters. I don't remember. Um, but, but yeah, I, I agree in this arc, there's certainly no, uh, like, like, uh, like, oh no, it's so terrible. This happened type consequence. Yeah. It's almost as if like the fact that she felt guilty about it matters more than the actual it happening, which could just mm-hmm. be, uh, again, us exploring <laughs> Taylor's guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Thanks. Cause she does feel really bad about it. Yeah. Yeah. So before we moved on though, I wanted to mention like someone told me, it might've been you actually, that the, uh, the chapter tags at the bottom of each chapter, uh, that list all the names of the characters that appear have the names of the clones in them and Mm -hmm. they're really fun and I like them a lot and I just wanted to make sure we call them out as we get to them. Yeah, Um, go for it. So Vista's clone is named Scape, like Landscape, I guess, uh, which is, which is very clever. (laughs) Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, that's probably, it's probably like a root or something. Yeah. It's probably like, uh, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. Looked it up. It doesn't, yeah, it's, that's probably what it is. Yeah. And Elites is named Pone, which is, is perfect. <laughs> and Ubers is Unter, uh, which is German for under, which is the opposite of Uber. Um, yeah. and Circus is named Carney, which is, I love that. <laughs> yeah. So great. I think that's my favorite one actually. Yeah. It's just like, it's, like the twisted evil version of of circus yeah and it's this <laughs> it's this little detail that like he threw in there it doesn't change anything it doesn't matter i think most people reading the story won't even see it but it's fun i like it yeah right and, and loves it, names i mean it's it's fun it allows you to like discuss the particular clones and and yeah yeah I mean, and, and yeah like you said it's just yeah the names are just endlessly rewarding to think about yeah we enter in on chapter 18.8 and uh, Skitter is really put off her stride upon realizing that she's enabled Noel to make swarms of aggressive black widows and hornets. Um, as we just talked about, uh, she feels really bad about this, although we don't really see much of a consequence from it uh, in this arc. At least the team decides to mop up the rest of the clones, uh, the most of which are, are unpowered ones and uh, then move on to help Idolin with Noel. Um, and it seems like he's backing off right now, perhaps switching out powers. Yeah, um, I this is a really good battle and it, it really shows how I think Wildbow has grown while he was writing on how he writes big, expansive battlefield type conflicts, because 
we have these two like gods almost fighting each other, but we are on the ground. We are with, um, with Skitter, who's kind of the street level fighters fighting off Noel's troops, which are the clones. And I think it adds to the realism of the battle. Like you can imagine them doing this stuff in the foreground while in the background, you're seeing explosions and, uh, the fighting of the of the gods behind them as as they fight i think it's really effective and i like it a lot yeah I and mean, i think it's really cool that skater is our pov character once again because she allows us to watch the fight between idolin and noel while doing other things uh, because of her sensory power yep um and there's actually a, a moment i don't remember what chapter it's in exactly where as she's like reporting what's going on all over the place the two chicago wards kind of look at each other like <laughs> holy crap she she's she can not only can she do all the other stuff but she's i didn't realize she had this like battlefield awareness yeah. so she's yeah. also still blind let's not forget that and, yeah, which, and actually, that yeah, actually ties I, into an interesting thing of we still haven't seen what noelle looks like yeah, yeah um because we're in taylor's head and taylor can't see her we get little hints like i think there's one thing that they say her bottom half looks similar to rachel's dogs but we don't get a full description of what she looks like uh, yet yeah and i think that's a really clever thing like it's it's there's this fighting and she's there but we can't see her yet yeah right because every time every time the bugs touch her they they get absorbed so she's just kind of a blind spot yeah yeah uh so tattletale and imp at this point split off so tattles can use a computer and imp can take a breather skitter and rachel uh end up stretching a chain between the two dogs that they're riding and they clothesline all of the clones who are mostly standing already, um, whereas the originals are lying lying down still. Skitter pulls free the only human in the pile, and they make uh, 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 and, and uh, Rachel tells Bastard to hurt and Bentley to kill. Yeah, that's a very interesting beat here, and I think it's obvious that we're being pointed out that for a very specific reason. And probably the most likely answer to this is that your dog being trained to kill something is a big step in it. And, a, and the un, the not fully trained bastard is just not ready to be able to do that to be sure we're under controlled, safe circumstances. But you could also read it that this is the pup bastard that Rachel feels the closest to. And she doesn't want him to have to be a killer just yet. Um, that might just be me reading into it, but I like it. So I'm going to headcanon it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not I don't really know enough about wolves, but it may be that like if you teach a wolf to kill people, then it's just like, oh, OK, yeah, yeah, whatever. I just, I just do that now. Yeah, right. Whereas maybe a dog will always have a hesitancy to kill. Yeah, people. I mean, that's probably I, the reason. But I like I like mine. Yeah, I like yours, too. So Skitter then takes on the three remaining evil clones who are still thrashing their originals. Oh boy. And uh, she she's thinking to herself. They're not people, they're mockeries. The small helpless sounds she made as blood bubbled around the throat wound weren't helping my attempts to, to assuage my conscience. Damn Noel, damn her for making me do this. You leave stuff alone, the fat clone bellowed. So at this point, Skitter engages this clone in conversation while fighting. Um, and it's interesting that we get this bit about the psychology of the clones here. Uh, and, and how they do indeed have feelings. It's, it's just that their feelings are engineered to be maximally destructive. So this guy uh, hates and resents the original Steph um, and his original self, but he seems to have transferred his feelings of protectiveness towards the clone Steph. Yeah, and, and 
if for some reason you thought that Wildbow was not intentionally humanizing the clones last week, then this whole beat is for you. Um, and it's this is when it basically formally declares that, yes, we are trying to humanize these monsters and show that they are still human beings because in the middle of this huge battle, our main character stops to chat with one um, and tries to reason with him. Uh, of course he can't be reasoned with. It was created to destroy. It's its only function and it is heartbreaking in a way. Uh, like I said last week, yes, we need to stop them. Probably we need to kill them, but we should feel bad about it. And, and I'm glad that Taylor does. Yeah. I mean, isn't this a quintessentially Taylor moment that she, stops and tries to converse with the evil monstrous clone like <laughs> yeah. i don't even think any I, I doubt any other character in this story would would actually do that yeah i mean we juxtapose it's, her with rachel rather specifically uh, who doesn't seem to feel bad at all at, yeah, at all right yeah they're they're less than people and rachel already barely hears about people in general <laughs> yeah yeah so there's just this <laughs> so i i you were talking earlier about juxtapositions and um, kind of irony cuts. So I just wanted to, to read this section here. This is the clone talking. Um, kill others. Kill dad and mom and Sammy and the cats. Kill teachers and classmates and burn my house and burn the school. Fuckers. All of them looking down on me. And then Taylor thinks, his words struck a chord. And it was the closest experience I'd ever had to the sort of flashback that happened in movies. I could remember being in the school bathroom, dripping with juice, being so frustrated, so angry, so hurt that I just wanted to lash out. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God. Because it's like the fact that she can empathize with that level of insane rage is so is so telling and, and sad and alarming. Yeah. And so many things. <laughs> yeah, we move past t just humanizing the clones to Taylor literally jumping in their shoes uh -huh. and saying, oh, yeah, kill everyone. That <laughs> reminds me of that time that I wanted to kill everyone. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 this actually got me thinking, and it, I think it poses an interesting question. Um, let's put Taylor as she is now back in that bathroom stall. Let's have Emma pour that juice on Skitter. And what does she do now? Because then she wanted to lash out, but she stopped herself. She calmed herself down. What uh, what what would happen now, Matt? I I, I wonder. Yeah, I'm thinking something along the lines of what her uh, Brockton Bay poster said. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think you're about uh, shocking violence. I think you're probably right. Yeah. So she and Rachel finish off the clones, and Skitter feels bad about the whole ordeal, and she's really physically exhausted from her, her broken rib and having to fight that way. They meet back up with the others and they head towards some other capes and it's strapping lad, intrepid and young buck, the Texas wards team. Yay. <laughs> so Matt, we both lived in Texas for a very long time. Uh, I still live there. So, uh, how do you feel about these capes? Um, I think that some of them are very stereotypically Texas, but, in the same time, I could definitely see a Texas resident naming themselves Young Buck. Like, it just, that would absolutely happen. Yeah, I mean, as a Texan, I can verify that all, all stereotypes are, are true, essentially, in, we don't, in, in their own way. We don't ride around on horses, guys. We have cars in Texas. I mean, I mean some people do, yes. I mean, the, but that's the thing, is is even the, even the Texans who live in Houston their whole lives and have seen a horse five times love the idea of being texan yeah that's and, true and love to like 
get cowboy boots and and have the you know attire of being a texan um so i can totally see even if these are like cosmopolitan capes i can totally see them going all in on the 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 texas mythology um i i i personally love that that they have stereotypically texas names because yeah. that's that's just so texas that's just exactly it, how that no, would be. I, I don't dislike it i yeah. I, I, <laughs> I just think it made me laugh very much um yeah. it, it's it's I, I don't know like i don't know if wild bow has ever been to texas or not um and it's just it's so funny that this is a stereotype that just is true it's just so true like there's no doubt in my mind that if if there were real superheroes one would call himself young buck like there's no uh-huh. doubt of course they would yeah yeah and the intrepid's not too bad i mean that's just a fairly yeah yeah good name Stra- yeah. strapping lad yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um there these these capes the texas capes are harassing noel with tinker made guns and with strapping lads, um, apparent breaker power where he can just sort of like turn himself into a bullet. Chronicler, uh, is also there and he seems to be able to sort of duplicate things in a time shifted way, basically doubles up attacks and the effect of the attacks. Yeah. I, I'd like to point out again that we are over halfway through this huge book now, and yet we're still regularly being introduced to new cool superpowers Mm-hmm. Um, that not only have we never seen in this story before, but I've never really seen in comic books before. And it's really cool that, that even here in the back half of the story, Wild Bo continues to come up with new, cool, interesting twists on powers. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like you said, Chronicler, that's, that's a, that's a really interesting, like you can see how that would have a lot of utility. You can like your, your imagination immediately starts going like how, how could you use that to your advantage in a variety of situations? Yep. Um, maybe even defensively. And, and it's just this, you know, very tertiary character. I don't even think he gets a line. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, uh, Tecton weighs in repeatedly shattering in, uh, the ground around Noel's feet and keeping her in place relatively well. And, and he, yeah, Skitter realizes he's actually making the area into an antlion pit around her. And she tries to slip her clones out via the 2D surface utilizing Vista. And Skitter catches onto this and has Tekton do a wide, shallow attack over every nearby surface, which drives the clones into the open and damages uh, at least one of them. Um, but they're still pretty effective. The Uber injures several of the flying heroes with thrown knives, uh, including poor strapping buck. And the circus sets one of them on fire. Yeah, that was our, our one opportunity to represent in this book. And uh, Texas failed. Yeah. Texas failed. We're, we're ashamed. Wait, did you call ashamed. him Strapping Buck? Strapping, did com- I did. Did you combine did, I did call names? Him, I did call him Strapping Buck. <laughs> one of those guys. <laughs> I like Strapping Buck even more, actually. Yeah. Makes sense. So Noelle then uh, vomits a huge stream of clones and, and, and vomit, uh, and she uses the clones for traction to climb out of the pit. Grace is knocked down and glued to the ground. So I'm glad we took the opportunity to humanize these creatures that Noelle is now quite literally using as snow chains for traction <laughs> to get out of an antlion pit. Thanks, for, thanks Wildbo, for spending the time to show us how these poor people are humans. Yeah. It just makes it even worse. Yeah, at least we're spared the the moment of them like being ground into paste under her feet. Yeah, that's true. So, so the uh, cries she, of pain. Yeah, right. Why, why, mother? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she shoots the Texans out of the sky with sprays of vomit, 
and Eidolon finally steps in using a kind of moisture manipulation power, mass desiccation. Uh, Tekton shouts that he's killing Grace too, and Gru points out that Eidolon might not care at this point. It doesn't seem like Eidolon is experiencing that level of danger that he thinks he needs. Oh yeah, and there's that monstrous Eidolon that uh, Jessica Yamada so rightly pegged a few chapters ago, seemingly unaware or unconcerned about the consequences of his actions. Is he putting a member of his own team at risk for, I mean, will we say the, the greater good, Matt? That, that be? I, I don't know. Is that, a theme? Sure he, Is that a theme we've hit I, a few times? I don't know. I, maybe. I'm sure I don't one would say that. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'd just like to remark here how deftly the tension is being manipulated in, in this whole section. Because um, Idolin um, is on is on the scene, and he's obviously really powerful. And he, in this moment, he himself doesn't feel like he's in any personal danger from Noel. Yet, this doesn't at all deflate the worry that we feel for our main characters. And I think that's because it's very strongly shown to us in moments like this that Idolin isn't strong enough to protect them and also kind of doesn't care to. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I, I completely agree. And I think it goes kind of back to what I was talking about earlier, that this battle is massive. And, and when you have a, a scope this big, the risk is that you kind of lose the stakes amongst the action that you drop the tension. And, and, and once you lose the stakes, the tension goes away and it kind of spoils it. And then it's just mindless action. And this happens so often in superhero movies. You and I talk about it all the time as we pull out and pull out, we lose those little human beats that keep us invested. I love Marvel, but the Avengers movies do this a lot and Mm -hmm. it kills the third act of these movies. But here, here, even as our scope and our stakes have zoomed to the citywide conflict where two superpowered gods are fighting each other, we keep things level. We keep things human. We're with Taylor on the ground, still fighting for her life, and we feel that, and, and we never lose that threat of danger, and then we never lose the tension, and, and it, it is so effective. Yep, yep, I, I agree. I, I, lo- I like how this is done quite a lot. So then the cavalry arrive. Uh, Ballistic comes in, blowing holes in Noel as he approaches, and Trickster and Scrub and the rest of the combat travelers too. Trickster swaps Grace out of the danger zone and himself in, uh, and he's he's actually fairly close, hanging out in the vomit slurry. Yeah, it's hard not to read this as like a, a victory moment, isn't it? Because um, we, we know the travelers, we like the travelers, we've been with them for so long, and you're almost like, yes, they're here and they're fighting here, the tide's going to turn, let's do this. And then, and then of course, it, it worms itself. <laughs> Wor- worm happens. <laughs> yeah. So, so for a while, Trickster is teleporting Idolin away and, and keeping him away so that the travelers can talk to her. And Sundancer uh, says that she's going to use her son to kill Noel. Um, and then that way, at least, Noel can be a good memory instead of a memory of destruction. But Noel is kind of past the point of accepting that anymore. But since we know Sundancer so well, we know how hard it must be for her to mm-hmm. make that choice, to get to that point where she feels like she has to do that. And yeah, and it shows again just how important that arc 17 was, Matt, that yeah. that time and all these characters heads, these beats hit you harder than they would if you didn't yeah. know this kind of stuff. Yeah. And she really seems to mean it here um, that, that she's actually going to go yeah. through with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like this this line from Noel where where somebody's somebody's telling her, like, you're, you're you know, you're, you're killing people. And Noel's basically saying those people don't matter. 
Uh, it's not our world. It's 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 as screwed up as the things I make. They're just dark, twisted copies of people in this dark, twisted, fucked up world, uh, which is a nice reminder that to the travelers, Earthbet is already the evil mirror world. Yeah. Perspective is interesting and it changes how you uh, how you rationalize things. But it's mm-hmm. interesting that like that's a great comparison. But since we've been humanizing these clones, it's easy to to to, to counter her logics being like, yeah, just like those clones you're making, though, the people of this world are still people and even if you don't think they're real people they still are people noel you're not making any sense anymore right they still suffer you know that's kind of the main thing yeah and i mean yeah they're they're she's she's just justifying herself at this point she's full of shit um so she tells trickster that if he gives her what she wants She'll let them kill her. And he sighs and agrees with that <laughs> predictably. So <laughs> with that, he swaps himself for Gru and she gets Gru. And then shortly after, he puts Skitter herself right next to Noelle. And she's caught as well and pulled in through the shifting flesh. And she senses Regent appear near as well. Um, and he says something as he too is captured. Yeah, it was at this point that I realized why everyone hates Krauss so much because <laughs> of this yeah. bullshit. Um, but this is kind of, I I think I predicted this last week that this is what was going to happen, that Krauss in in the final moment, uh, or, or in the decisive moment rather is going to align himself with Noel and betray everyone else that here, even in this moment, he can't take her off the pedestal. And Mm -hmm. the consequences of that are, I I guess we're going to find out next week, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is it. This is his tragic choice, I guess that, you know, on top of everything he's ever, he's done before this, all the mistakes he made, he had a chance to make it right, and mm-hmm. he chose not to. Yep, yep. It's it is a, it is a tragedy. And then we we leave, we're done with Skitter for the rest of the arc. We still have two more chapters, but we're gonna leave her. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this is like we've left Skitter in a lot of pretty bad situations <laughs> before, um, but this seems like one. Like I don't know if. Taylor's toolbox has escaped from a giant mutating girl tummy Mm -hmm. in it. So this is like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really great cliffhanger. I mean, because like I, there's been so many situations she's been in where I'm like, how the hell is she going to get out of this? But this is probably the biggest, the most, how the hell is she going to get out of this out of all of them? Yeah, I feel you there, but we'll see. We'll see. Or maybe we won't, Scott. Maybe she won't get out of this. Wow, you're so, you're so, you're so mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be, Scott. It's my job. I understand. All right, so we we cut from here to a very interesting interlude, uh, eighteen dot whatever uh, fault line. Eighteen dot uh, fault line. Yeah, eighteen dot fault line. It's not. Although interestingly, uh, this this interlude shifts POV uh, because it starts out with Dr. Jeremy Foster, who is woken by a gunshot. He calls a security, and the person who answers isn't the person who should answer. And he rushes to his door, and outside his bedroom door are a pair of people. And he barely manages to slam the door and get into his panic room before they get to him. I wonder if Wild Bo is ever just going to write straight-up horror fiction. <laughs> because he has a real knack for it. He really does. And, like, it's very obvious that he he's established this as being in this guy's point of view for a reason to make this more tense and to make it more scary. And it does that. 
because th- that's the only reason to start in this guy's point of view because you could very easily just start from fault lines pov as they approach the door to fuck with this guy but he doesn't do that and it's it's just a really great start it's kind of like remnant to me of like uh the cold open of a movie of a horror movie where one a guy dies before the credits roll <laughs> yeah yeah no i know you mean that's that's definitely some some tropes at play there yeah. um I, I, I kind of I, I know Elbow said that he that he loves horror. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if he did write some. I mean, but part of me wants to say like part of Worm probably, but parts of Worm probably do qualify as yeah. as horror. But I, but I think I think to, to to take your point, like it's the overarching genre is superhero um, with with some playing within in, in the in the boundaries. Um, but it would be really interesting to see Wildbow write just like a horror story. Yeah, I, I agree. Yep. Uh, yeah, so he watches on the monitor as the thieves uh, enter his house, ignoring all the valuables and heading straight to his bedroom. Once there, we see Labyrinth's power transform the room into an overgrown temple. Soon the door to his panic room is removed, and he opens fire with his pistol, but nobody is there to shoot at. And this is when Scott got excited, because we haven't seen Faultline's crew in forever. And yeah. Gregor the Snail is my boy. He's my favorite right. slug person. <laughs> I've ever known. <laughs> also, I like Labyrinth a lot too. I like yeah. her a lot. So here's where we switch POV to Fault Line and we stay with her for the rest of the uh, interlude. So the crew are flanking the door. Fault Line wants answers from the doctor. He has been spending too much money and she knows he must be getting it from somewhere. And they suspect it's Cauldron. Yeah, I think you could just rename this entire interlude uh, Cauldron is the worst. And I don't think you'd be very far off. Yeah, I mean, and like you pointed out a while ago, there's a lot of of cauldron kind of foreshadowing and 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 implication going on in this whole uh, this whole arc. Yeah. So since he's being uncooperative, she, quote, checks with the person paying for the mission to see if he's willing to torture the doctor, which means that she looks at Gregor, surprisingly, uh, and he just shakes his head. Yeah, and this is where I couldn't remember if Gregor was not really part of the crew or not, and he's just hired them, so he's been hanging out with them, or is he part of the crew? He's just also hiring them to do the thing he wants. Yeah, I think I think like my sort of twisted explanation for for this is just like they part of their part of their mo as a group is that they're this group who has an unusual number of K-53s and and they have an unusual yeah. interest in in figuring out the cauldron mystery, but because they're mercenaries and because fault line is who she is, um, they, they got, they got to get paid. So, (laughs) so, so here Gregor is paying out of his own pocket to send the team on a mission that is pursuant to several of the team members. Yeah. Goals. Actually. It's very interesting that we have that juxtaposed with the fact that they seem like such a tight knit family, which is a beat we hit over and over again in this. Mm-hmm. Um, which goes to show like even a family of mercenaries are still mercenaries. Yeah. Right. And I mean, like it's, it's really, it seems really important to Flechette, uh, not Flechette, um, uh, fault line, uh, that she, that she like be able to take her, ser- to take herself seriously in this role as a mercenary. So I can totally yeah. see her doing this thing where she's like making Gregor pay them for it. And then everyone just rolling their eyes and doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, so so she threatens to blab about what they already know, um, and he tells her that he did some low-end espionage for the UK and the uh, CIU, I think, um, and they get a name for one of his contacts, uh, a Christoph, 
Um, and it's a useful clue because Kristoff seems uh, to want to know the aftermath of a particular Seamurg attack, Madison. Oh, you mean that one where all the Case 53s escaped because the Seamurg opened a portal to the Cauldron's pocket dimension thing? That one? Yeah. That place? I believe so. Okay. So back at the hotel room, we get a slice of life in Fault Line's crew. Uh, the, the the varying personalities, uh, Spitfire and Neuter, sort of good good naturedly pushing back against Faultline's orders. Everybody pitching in to take care of Noel. Uh, Faultline brushes Noel's uh, Noel and Noel. L. Not, I don't it's... know how that happened. <laughs> take care of L. Uh, Fault, Faultline, yeah, I guess so. Faultline brushes L's hair and uh, chides her not to change the room into a setting that involves water, uh, just to avoid uh, doing water damage and I guess losing the deposit. Um, not that that's usually a problem since the labyrinth power usually puts things mostly back the way they were apparently. Yeah. And like I mentioned a little bit earlier, we're intentionally seemingly trying to reinforce this, this unit cohesion, this idea of family, this idea of like almost domestic life that these mercenaries have with each other. They like each other. They, they enjoy each other's company and this will come into play when they're brutally attacked in a few pages. Yeah. Yeah, so Gregor and Shamrock enter, holding hands. Gregor, my boy! <laughs> I was so happy with this. Hey, yeah, me too. Hey, hey, Matt. Yes. Looks like looks like Shamrock isn't the only one getting lucky. <laughs> Matt, I wrote that joke seven days ago. <laughs> Wait, no. Six days. Five days ago. I wrote that joke on Thursday when I read this, and I, I uh... could have tweeted it, but I didn't. I saved it for right now, and... All you out there, it was you, worth it. You better say you loved it. That's some discipline. All right, let me, let me pull myself together. <laughs> I'm so, just too so, funny. I just, I yeah. can't, I can't even. It's, uh, it's such a burden. I, I know. I'm sorry. So the team gets ready for another job. We get a description of Faultline's gear as she puts it on, and it's purely functional. She wears a bulletproof vest and a fake ponytail that's purely there to be grabbed as a trap. Her body is covered in belts full of tools and weapons and guns. Uh, she kind of looks like the Punisher at this point in my head. Uh, but unlike the Punisher, though, she covers all of this attire with a flowing uh, dress uh, and a welder's mask. Um, which at this point for me, as soon as I had this thought, I had to go on a tangent and read about the Punisher for a while and think about how that character um, is also sort of a bit of a deconstruction of the superhero idea the same way worm is but in a different direction i support this tangent well done yeah but uh i'm gonna gonna truncate that right there and uh, get back to the chapter the crew leave the hotel and cross the no man's land to the wall that now encircles madison fault line uses her power to make an opening in the wall a tunnel going all the way through labyrinth changes the tunnel into something more accommodating yeah and again this is this little beat of them working together them being in sync with each other and they're abilities teaming up they're a team they're a family we keep hitting this yeah yeah um they enter the city and shamrock is not enjoying the claustrophobic tunnel at all yeah and that's again another seemingly insignificant character beat it might pay off in the future might not it might have to do with her trigger event might not but it serves in this moment to kind of do a little characterization a little character we don't know a lot about we get a little bit of a characterization from her and it helps that that she's concerned about this and the rest of the team knows that and they kind of help her through it um and again wild bow bringing character moments in places that you wouldn't 
always think about it. Yeah. Um, particularly to your point where she's, she's being claustrophobic and the other teammates are like, okay, we'll, we'll try to accommodate you better on the way back. Yeah. Um, instead of like, I, I don't know, maybe I'm being a little bit hard on Taylor here, but I feel like no. she would, she, she would kind of be like in her head, at least be like, you're being an inadequate tool right now <laughs> by experiencing this claustrophobia, which is highly inconvenient for yeah. our mission. Can you just get your shit together? Uh, Shamrock? I, I think you're probably right. I think we're probably yeah. going to get some pushback on that, but I think you're because right. Taylor is often like empathetic, but, but often like during a mission, she's not. So yeah. she's, she's, yeah. yeah. I think if, if someone's, uh, concerns are preventing the plan from being executed in the proper way, that is when her empathy stops. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So inside Madison, uh, the city has withered. Windows are broken, buildings are collapsed, plant life has taken root everywhere. It's only been a year and a half, but nature is already reclaiming the place. Um, yet again, speaking of ju- ju- juxtapositions, we have um, this this moment inside Fallen's head where she's she's thinking uh, she couldn't help but think about what Coyle had said about the world ending in two years. However, it happened. If it happened, how long would it be before nature had destroyed every trace of humanity after mankind was gone? Pretty labyrinth said as she emerged from the tunnel her head craned as she looked around yeah wildbow loves those rhythmic uh irony cuts doesn't he mm-hmm. uh, yeah. he really does and and they're, they're very effective i i enjoy them a lot some of my favorite tv shows <laughs> use them almost religiously and it's either funny or effective or shining lights on things that need to be shined on and it's 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 works here i like it mm-hmm. yeah so they move on uh, looking for any survivors in the city. Dr. Foster had been asked to keep tabs on people being released from the quarantine. So Faultline assumes that's the information that Cauldron is after. Uh, these would be the people getting the bird tattoo, uh, though apparently that program has been abandoned uh, because it's a terrible idea. Yeah. Okay. So bone to pick with some some people out there. Um <laughs> Well, first of all, before we get into that, I can't believe it took me to this moment to link the swan tattoo that we saw on Manton's hand to the Seamurg. I, I don't I don't know why I didn't make that connection. I think it's pretty obvious when you think about it, but I'm, I guess I'm not as good as some of you think I am. <laughs> but um, more importantly, more importantly, everyone got on my case for saying that the quarantine measures were ineffective and horrible and inhumane and mean and then the text basically agrees by saying that specifically because it's abandoned <laughs> almost immediately. And well, the tattoo, the tattoo aspect is abandoned, right? I don't know if they abandoned other aspects. Oh, well, maybe I read that wrong then. Well, but but like the tattoos are particularly inhumane aspect, I think. That, yeah, because it marks and, you permanently. Yeah. 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 And, and before people are going to get on me and say, yeah, it was abandoned because it's the civilians fault. They refuse to cooperate. My response to that is, yeah, well, that's what happens when you design a cruel system that punishes innocent people. The people tend to push back on it. Yeah. I still think it's a terrible idea. I don't like it. I, everyone had really great points. Their logic was sound. My response is, yeah, but that's awful. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, I, I get it. And like, I had my own kind of pushback to it. Although, although if you were to, put me in a corner and say like, okay, Matt, you come up with a better idea. Um, I would have a hard time and probably invent an idea that resulted in the Seamer destroying the world. 
Well, Matt, the advantage of being a critic is you don't have to come up with the ideas. You just yeah. have to tell other people that they're bad. Yeah, I don't have to have solutions. There, I just have to point out problems. There exactly. you go. Yeah. Um, um, speaking of the tattoo, um, I, I wanted to at least mention, if you didn't know this, you may have known this. Um, people in real life have actually gotten tattoos inspired by the the, the Seamurg, uh, you know, the, the swan the that's the bird cool. the the white bird type tattoo um that's cool yeah I, I agree that that's that's really awesome and if I ever saw that in real life I would I would be your friend do you run up and and hug them uh I mean that's the funny thing about getting <laughs> that specific tattoo is like in order to play along with the joke I'd probably act like I was terrified of them and run away <laughs> um uh, at least at first you know that'd be amazing yeah yeah um it's, I, I just wanted to to ask i guess like so so assuming assuming that fault line is right in her interpretation of things cauldron wanted this guy to keep track of people who were being put through the quarantine procedure what do you think are the odds that cauldron was specifically specifically looking into the travelers and 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 they slipped through the net huh i mean i guess to (sighs) that's kind of hard for me to believe because I don't know how they would know that they got there. I mean, it makes sense that they specifically know about all their case 53s that escaped because they have um, all these guys that escaped and they know they escaped. They had at least an inventory of monsters. Um, But that kind of thing would, would imply that they have some sort of uh, knowledge that this happened. And I guess it's possible in a world of, of superheroes that they have people on their team that just know these kind of things. Um, so I guess that's possible. Uh, I don't know if there's enough textual evidence right now to, to conclude on that definitively. Yeah. That's just where my mind went, but I agree with you that it's like, um, it, it's, it's a stretch to prove it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's certainly as nefarious and why do I always say that word wrong? <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> I know how it's pronounced and then I say it and it comes out of my mouth wrong. Anyway, I, I, I do it too. Sometimes. Um, Anyway, they're as terrible as they are. I am not I would not be surprised that they have a way of knowing and they've been looking for these kids for a while. That's not out of the realm of believability. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to see what you were thinking at this point. Um, Yeah. So (laughs) just a bit of like flavor here as they're walking through uh, fall. I noted a message scrawled onto a wall. Three horn babies seen here. May 20 killed two, one lived. Um, and then later someone relates another message to her. Uh, I couldn't read it all very broken English, but it said something about a devourer. (laughs) Yeah. So things in Madison, Wisconsin are not going well. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, and and that's perfect because I I don't need to know anything else about what thorn babies are. I, 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 that's (laughs) perfect. That's a perfect name. I already am imagining something terrible. Um, Yeah. And the devourer, there's, yeah, there's no the positive context of the <laughs> word devourer. Yeah. So they move deeper into the city, not finding any people. And Faultline thanks Elle for going through all of this. All the moving around is making it difficult for her to settle into one place and reach a point of lucidity. Yeah, again, again and again, this beat. Genuine kindness between teammates, camaraderie, family. Yeah. We're, we're hitting this over and over again. And it's, yeah. it's important. It's necessary. And it's doing something. Yeah, totally. At this point, 
Fallen sees a flare launched by Neuter. She races to him and finds civilians with improvised primitive weapons. Faultline offers to help them leave quarantine, which is a terrible idea, uh, if they know where the crew can talk to some monsters. One of the women uh, with them turns out to be one, our friend Matryoshka. Uh, I wonder what exactly we're supposed to feel about this, though, since I suspect that she's absorbed a few people in order to look normal. Yeah, I think I think we're supposed to feel pretty conflicted. Um, we left her while she was basically eating people um, back in that that diner or that burger stand or whatever it was. Um, but also, like, I think the text kind of specifically painted a way to pity them. So I think you, you're you're conflicted about it. You, I don't know if we trust her. She could be bad news, but um, also you feel bad for her. Yeah, because am... of fucking cauldron. Yeah, right. And she's a victim. And I am reminded that like the other two um, or maybe even just one of the, the other monsters she was with were pressuring her to to devour the, the other people. Yeah. Um. So that's um. I don't know if that absolves her or whatever, but mm-hmm. like she was in a bad situation. Um. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely like I definitely wasn't like, oh, yeah, fault line. Just forgive her. Um, yeah, yeah, no, totally. Yeah, I think I think. I'm, I'm, I was the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So Shamrock tells us a bit about what it was like in the cauldron prison, because if, if you recall, she she was there and she escaped. So they gave her uh, small comforts if she cooperated and nothing or punishment if she didn't trying to coax her to use her powers. Matryoshka says that she thinks that they used her to punish others who had failed their tests. She admits that she's a predator and says uh, that Faultline's crew don't want her near them. Uh, and fault line blows this off, though I don't know if we're supposed to feel that this is smart. Yeah, um, I, I like this because we we establish that tension, and then she's almost like immediately nice. Um, mm-hmm. Matryoshka is so like admitting that I'm a hunter. I'm not necessarily a good person. You don't want me, and then take her in anyway. So we kind of dispel that tension, um, and then we just see another example of Cauldron being a bunch of cruel assholes. <laughs> Because Shamrock's story is terrible, like the coin flipping. And then I think she said by the end of it, she had to get 12 dice to hit six before she could eat um, or something like it's just it's just just terrible. And and, and we've been talking about it all, all episode that we're cauldron is bad beats again and again and again. And I, I think this is interesting because this story is kind of talking about bad things, evil things and how sometimes we do bad things. For, for good reasons, so, which makes me think that Cauldron is not just going to be this nebulous evil organization with just pure evil goals. It's just not the kind of story this is. Um, so there's probably going to be a reason that Cauldron eventually gives us uh, for why they're doing the things they do and, and it's necessary evil. And, and I think Alexandria already kind of hints that. Um, but it's interesting that we kind of... We didn't show the organization as its front first and then show the terrible things behind it. We did it the opposite way. We showed we're, we're like hitting all the terrible beats. And then later we're going to be told why they're doing those things. And I wonder if that's a way to um, like confront Taylor with that kind of reasoning. And I think that's probably going to be how this plays out in the future. And I'm interested to see it. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, That's interesting because that's like a kind of, it's like a kind of speculation that doesn't it's not really like a plot speculation. It's yeah. more of like a Structure. evolution of story storytelling yeah. dynamics speculation. Um 
I think that's really, really interesting. Those are my favorite kind. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, don't know why I did an accent on that. That was weird. <laughs> it was necessary. So the crew returned to the hotel with Matryoshka, uh, who gorges and watches TV and tells them about her world, which we don't get to hear anything about. Uh, Faultline heads to the front desk to take a call from Brockton Bay, assuming it's Coyle. Uh, on her way to the front desk, she walks past a young, dark-haired lady in a suit and fedora who tips her hat as she steps into the elevator. Faultline has a bad feeling about her, and she sends Shamrock back upstairs to tell the team to keep an eye out. Um, yeah. So everyone got on me last time for pronouncing uh, Contessa's name wrong the first time. <laughs> this time, I'm saying it wrong on purpose. So Faultline expects <laughs> the call to be from Coyle. Uh, but it's her best friend, Tattletail, instead. Uh, she wants to borrow Labyrinth for some non-combat functionality. Um, and just this moment of, uh, I think, Tattletail said, and she managed to sound condescending, that I understand her power better than you do. Fallen considered hanging up. I yeah. mean, it's really funny to me because Fallen has been like such a nice person to everyone yeah. in this whole interlude, and she just hates Tattletail. <laughs> yeah, it's you almost forget that they like she never really liked her, right? That this was yeah. always like there was always animosity between the two, um, and and this kind of reminds you of it. And I guess so. So the indication here is we're supposed to be is that Tattletail wants to use Labyrinth to get the travelers home, I guess, um, which is kind of way different from what we understand of labyrinth's power at all but you know tattletale knows things and mm -hmm. is kind of becoming pretty smug about it yeah right yeah she's getting pretty bad um yeah and i think i think if we're trying to slot this timeline wise i'm guessing this is the part that is taking place like right after tattletale left the group with imp and to use her computer and this is part of her her plan around um how she's gonna combat noel yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, so so Tattletail ends up paying her a total of $6.8 million to return to Brockton Bay for this job, and she wires it to her on the spot. Uh, Faultline then heads upstairs to check on the funds and hears screaming. And the cool thing about this moment to me is that we saw Contessa, right? So we know mm -hmm. that she's there, and you're fairly sure it's her. But in the back of your mind, you also remember uh, Matryoshka. And I think it's cool that they could both be plausible. Either could be plausible. Like you, you're still kind of unsure of what's happening. Mm -hmm. that, that's true. I forgot about that because I remembered this scene, obviously. But yeah, that's, that's very interesting because you're almost like, well, maybe the woman in the fedora was a red herring. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So the, there's blood on the door. Her team has been destroyed, in her words. Gregor is on his back, scalded. Neuter's bones are broken in multiple places. Matryoshka's ribbons are pinned to the walls with knives. Labyrinth is screaming in a fugue. One of her hands is impaled to the armrest of the couch with a knife. Shamrock is using one of her, uh, her, her remaining working hand to give a tracheotomy to Spitfire, who's suffocating on a hatful of Gregor's slime. So Contessa uh, took her team apart in 20 seconds and didn't even receive a scratch in return. And she left a note under Elle's hand. Final warning. C. Yeah, I guess that's why uh, the 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 doctor or whatever always felt really confident uh, whenever whenever Contessa was around her. Because uh, mm -hmm. holy shit! Um, and, and this is like we we've been setting up this whole chapter how kind they were to each other, how well they worked together, how much of a family they were, and 
it, it gets us in this mindset of Faultline genuinely, genuinely cares about these people. So when we hit this moment of them being devastated, we feel it. And especially L, poor screaming L, um, we feel this so much. And you you leave this chapter saying, I, I like I can't imagine someone that didn't leave this chapter hating Coil. Like I certainly do, and I feel like we're supposed to at this point. Yeah. Did yeah, I say Coil? I, I, I meant Cauldron. Yeah. I, I mean, I we already hate Coil. Yeah. We yeah. It's fine. We all we all get five uh, using the wrong name instances per episode. <laughs> oh God! I hope people aren't tracking that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people are going to want me to ask you to speculate on Contessa's power at this point. Now that we've seen her do something, I have they're no, gonna, I have th- no th- idea. They're going to do it. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask now. I have no idea. All um, right, that's fine. Everything. Her power is everything. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Um, get that out of the way. Eighteen dot something. The Noel interlude, uh, which I think we've been waiting for subconsciously. Yep. So Noel is leading her team to video game glory back in the day. She manages the complex situation intuitively, ignoring Cody's tantrum. It's a nail biter, but the travelers come out on top. They're jubilant. And Noel is happy enough that she's able to hug Krauss without feeling self-conscious about it. Yeah, um, this is such a great opening chapter. Um, we've never seen Noelle like this. Not really. Uh, the, like she's in the zone. She's happy. She's doing what she loves and she's good at it. And she's commanding her troops much like Taylor would, mind you. Um, I kind of, I like this Noelle. And I think triggering that empathetic reaction for her is so important to everything that follows this. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, th- this emphasizes this this chapter emphasizes the degree to which she's a she's a victim and she's just been absolutely run ragged with with what's what she's been through. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she comes back to herself, and we realize that was a flashback. Her body, her her giant monstrous body, is running too hot. It's it's feverish. It's unbearable. She talks to herself to her passenger. She says, "I know why you showed me that." This is, I think, the first time we're getting a real confirmation of the self-awareness and and kind of consciousness of the passengers, I think. Um, This is kind of huge in our understanding of what the passengers are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Trickster is with her. We're basically picking up where we just left off. He's discombobulating the heroes with his power. Uh, He's moving with confidence and assuredness and pride. But we know Krauss. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We know this is false confidence. We know it's false assuredness. Um, even in this moment, he can't take that mask off, even as he betrays everyone and breaks every promise he made to all these people. He, he still has to hold himself as this prideful, confident person. Um, all it's all for Noel. It's all for Noel. Yep. Yeah. Or, yeah. Oh, and, Krauss. uh, Oh, Krauss. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's, you're forced to go into his head for a moment here and see that he feels forced into this mainly through, through guilt and, and obligation. Yep. So as she, as she draws Regent into herself, uh, Regent shouts for Rachel to get away. Um, Noel tries to spray some bodies out for Trickster to use to to swap Rachel toward them, but Tecton covers Rachel's retreat with dust. And then uh, I, I like this that we get a description from Noel's point of view of like what it is she's doing exactly, and and it says Noel tagged several of the bodies in her internal stomachs, felt flesh constrict tight against them. Felt the pre-prepared nuggets of flesh in her gullet forming into close replicas in an instant. Timing was crucial. 
if she spat them out too soon, they'd be malformed, missing limbs or features too late. And there was extra material. Yeah, this is really gross. And the detail is great. And I think it just shows how like Wild Bo wants to create this world in as much detail as possible. It's not enough to just say she made the clones. He needs to add that air of authenticity to it, to to, to what what is happening and, and mm-hmm. how it's working. And it's kind of crazy that he's sticking with this as we go to this more outlandish kind of plot where we're going like more sci-fi, more weird and crazy. And we're still sticking to uh, basing ourselves in some sort of some sort of explainable thing. Yeah, right. Like it's it's not just like uh, suddenly they appear magically. It's like she's talking about stomachs and gullets and muscles. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, it, she, she can clearly feel exactly yeah. what she's doing. There's yeah. an actual mechanism in there doing it. It's not just touch person. Poof. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I, I agree. That, that's great. So she spits out the real Uber uh, accidentally, but doesn't bother to reclaim him because he's useless. You <laughs> <laughs> uh, <he> suck, Uber. <laughs> and then we get the best moment ever. Hey, Regent said, monster girl. Noelle snarled as she glanced down at the boy who was stuck inside one of her legs. Only his face was left to be consumed. Her voice was hoarse with emotion as she asked, what? When you make my clone, do you think you could give him a goatee? Noel didn't dignify the question with a response. She flex, she flexed and drew region completely within her body. <laughs> this shit, Matt. This shit right here. Forget everything else we've talked about for yep. 19 episodes. This is why this book is so great. Yeah. We've we've been saying it again and again, especially this week, but these tiny, almost insignificant character beat moments are everything. They're everything. Uh-huh. And like this is a tense, depressing, horrible interlude in which we're seeing this poor girl with an eating disorder suffer and and lose a battle with this force that's taking her over from the inside. And yet we can still have moments of of fun. We can still mm. laugh. There's we can still drop tension for a little bit to have a chuckle to ourselves as we read. And that's so important. And it's done so well. And I lost it when I read this. I loved it. Yeah. For some reason, it makes it even funnier that she's just like furious and not having it at all. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, yeah, um, this is one of my favorite, you know, jokes. And and I just, yeah, the, the comic relief element of Regent's character is absolutely yeah. indispensable. Yeah, I agree. So her body... Uh, is rewarding her for moving. It's rewarding her for for using her body for aggression. It makes her feel good. It gives her endorphins and happy memories. And soon Noelle thinks she'll be the one trying to manipulate her body into doing what she wants instead of the other way around. Oh, almost as if the passenger inside her is influencing her to make her act more aggressive and to fight. Did, mm. did we just confirm my speculation, Matt? Did we just do it? I mean, it, we can probably say it's provisionally, you know, unless it's like contradicted later because that's fine fine seems i mean i mean i'll put a little on. half smiley face on it no I, th- I think you should just think you should just confirm it we can always unconfirm it later I guess if it turns out true. to be wrong i guess yeah. that's true all right let's move on okay tecton tries to hold her at bay uh, and she mobs him with clones she's hesitating more when spitting clones because she doesn't want to risk losing an undersider and apparently there's a higher risk of losing an original if she's made a lot of clones first yeah and again we're putting artificial but realistic sounding limitations on powers because it's not just enough 
to invent a new thing and it's not just enough to define the parameters but we have to put a limitation on it it makes it feel more real i like it yeah i like it too and it's it's a limitation that skitter doesn't actually know you know the, the the heroes don't actually know this limitation so yeah um as she fights grace she tries to consider what clones to use to fight her off she thinks about the smell aspect of her power the means by which she can sense and come to understand the powers of capes skitters grooves and eidolon smells um sorry eidolon smells uh are relatively unique uh, they're more intense hmm <laughs> all right let's <laughs> let's have some fun with this because i think we can look at what the unique things do we know about each of these people and attempt to draw a connection to them. Uh, we know that Gru has had his second trigger event. We know that Eidolon is the most powerful non-scion cape in the world and is a cauldron cape. We know that the three of them are powerful, but we also know that, that Vista is very powerful too. And, and interestingly enough was not included in this list. So it doesn't appear to just the power level that she's talking about here um so i do have a speculation here but you're gonna have to wait till the end okay excited um she lets a grew spill forth uh, the real grew comes out as well but she slurps him back up um and it looks like grew will make for useful clones uh, because he's an orderly and disciplined person and his clones will there therefore be lawful evil yeah, and it's that protective nature of him that seems to pass on to his clone, too, because he immediately starts protecting uh, protecting Noel. Yeah, right. So this Gru's darkness is sticky. Tecton manages to impede his use of his sticky darkness blobs, uh, and he keeps, uh, he keeps uh, both of them busy. Um, Trickster and Noel, uh, sorry, tr uh, Trickster has taken out the rest of the flying capes except for one, and Idolin is holding back somewhere nearby. Trickster teleports into a group of clones, and they go after him. They don't listen when Noelle tries to call them off, and she's forced to kind of stampede at them and scare them back. She's tempted to swallow him, uh, Trickster that is, but she restrains herself. And and she she thinks, you know, to herself, two of them against the world. That's yeah. how she sees it. Just like Krauss always wanted, right? Mm -hmm. I think that echoes, I don't think he says that specifically, but I think that echoes a feeling he had in, in Arc 17. Um, yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I'm not sure. Yeah, it does sound really familiar. So now she gets another memory, and we see her uh, attempted breakup from the other side. Um, and I I find that we had such a strong sense of these characters from the first time around that we don't even really need this scene. Although I do enjoy many of the specific touches that we do get. Yeah, I agree. I I, I still really like it though. Uh, I think it does reinforce how little Kraus actually cared about what her problems were because he knew she had a problem and it doesn't take too much to see that the reason for their breakup seems to stem from it he seems even conscious of that but he can't see the problem itself and he can't see that 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 by putting her on this pedestal he's enabling that disorder and we could have kind of gotten that from the scene from his point of view but i i i, I like it i like it from her her mind as well yeah no i agree i i, I didn't mean to imply that i didn't wanted in the story it's it's more that like um i felt like i already understood her character so well that, you know it, that that it was uh um not not um i don't know i don't know what i was trying to say there i, I got you though i think yeah okay so it, it finally becomes clear 
that she has an eating disorder, like you said. Uh, specifically, she's already relapsed once due to their relationship. So she yeah. she loves him and she hates him, basically, is is kind of the, the emotional undertone of all this. Yeah. I, I'm sad that I was right about this. I think yeah. it was very obvious when you look at all the clues in Arc 17, but um, it, it's very awful. And there's the one part I like in particular when um, she says that she can't break it off, not when he's being this good about it, not when it's making the both of us this miserable. Mm-hmm. And this really hit me, Matt, because it's such a human response to a breakup. Um, mm-hmm. I know this because I did the exact same thing. I broke up with someone years and years ago and then saw how miserable it was making the two of us. And then I decided to get back together with that person. And it was a horrible mistake. It was not mm-hmm. a good move. It, 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 it wasn't like a ending with me rampaging across the city, eating people and barfing up <laughs> evil clones. Horrible. But I almost moved to Kansas. So... <laughs> basically the same similar yeah yeah um (laughs) yeah i think we've given the tip before uh that uh if 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 someone tries to break up with you don't convince them not to which is the uh the inverse of that advice actually yeah yeah because i mean you could argue that noel maybe should have been stronger here you can make that argument but Krauss should have listened to what she was saying not just the words but the intent behind them the relationship was messing her up and she tried to get out of it and he would not let her and that i think is the most important part of that beat that he would not let her um and and you, they mention the duality here very specifically that she loves him and she hates him and it matches up perfectly with the two parts of noel that are existing inside her right now that are battling for control um, mm. I like that a lot. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't catch that. Yeah, that's interesting. So she comes back to herself from this from this terrible flashback, um, and she's fighting Idolin. Uh, she has to slurp up Sk- Skitter again, who she spit out while she was out of it. <laughs> that's her protagonist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, just like thrown up and and spit and slurped up again. Yeah, um, and she thinks to herself, or she thinks to her passenger rather, "Why did you show me that? Why was that so important?" There was no reply. Never a reply. Um, I just like that. Just, just like that. Yeah. That confirmation that the pat. It's not like it's not like the passenger talks back to her. It's this very abstract relationship, if you can even call it that. Yeah. Right. Uh, so her regent knocks Idolin out of the sky. Tecton and Grace are still being complete ballers, uh, tripping up Noel's footing and knocking her around. They're they're like a really impressive tag team. Like they've survived and been effective for this long yeah they've kind of just kind of hovered in the background a little bit not getting too much attention but you're right they're really cool and i kind of hope we haven't seen the last of them yeah um idolin starts using a new power at this point he releases blue sparks which grow into large crackling spheres of electrical charge uh, that home in on targets they spread evenly across the area removing the advantage of trickster's mobility and then we have this i'm just going to read this whole thing it's 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 noel um, it wasn't you, she thought. I keep saying it was your fault. It wasn't. She was already moving toward him as the thought came to her. I blamed you for giving me the elixir, the potion, whatever you call it. But it was me. I heard you guys talking about how the people who drank the stuff were supposed to get tested for psychiatric issues. I didn't tell you the Seamurg showed me visions of my worst days, my relapses, my lowest points. That she drove me back into a state where I was reluctant to take the full dose, eager for a compromise. And there it is. There's the Seamurg's full plan revealed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Krauss's job was just to get to the point where he would pressure her into taking the vial. And her job was to be just insecure enough to only take half of it. This this is the end game. 
we're here now and it's mm-hmm. shows how powerful this creature is how scary yeah and and in, in a sense it's like the other shoe dropping from a dramatic moment that was set up in 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 the traveler's arc yeah um, absolutely and and it's really cool that that's happening here at the end of this arc so she basically she's almost i don't i don't know if she's fully suicidal here but she's she's trying to protect trickster uh, she uses her body to take the hits from the orbs to shield Trickster from them. She willingly takes hit after hit, and her flesh is blown apart, burned, turned to ash. It's actually exceeding her ability to heal. Uh, she finds that she hates Eidolon, or, or at least her other half does. She can't really tell the difference anymore. A killing instinct overcomes her, a true desire to kill that she hasn't felt before. Her body really wants Eidolon dead, so she offers it a deal. <laughs> her body can make that happen as long as it doesn't hurt trickster. And it's, it's in this moment that you realize that these things exist in every single Cape on the planet. Um, I, I think we can say that Noel's mutation might've caused hers to be a little more uh, active and direct with its desire, but they're inside everyone and they're pushing them towards violence, nudging them in this direction of hate, making them wanting to kill, making them be like this and holy shit. Like the, the terrifying implications of that. Yeah. are insane right yeah so when she surrenders to her passenger the memory she gets this time the the nice memory she requested isn't hers it's like a trigger vision and this time it's not just images it's really a memory it has context there's understanding there's purpose it's an individual who's part of a collective of trillions but this one entity that we're seeing through it has a target a specific individual that it's meant to bond with And Noelle comes back and realizes it wasn't her. This power or this passenger or whatever was meant for someone else. And she thinks gone to the wrong person, askew from the beginning, then twisted further by her own psychological issues, messed up by the fact that she'd only taken half a dose. Yeah, so uh, this is huge. (laughs) Um, and, And I think now we have to believe that this is what Cauldron is doing with their formulas, that they've found a way to either catch or intercept the passenger take it from where it was supposed to go bottle it up and give it to someone else but that is wrong uh, as as far as the passenger is concerned um i wonder what that says about the passengers that are inside the cauldron caves and it makes me wonder is that why Adolan's power is dying that it was never really meant for him and he was just using borrowed power and it's dried up mm, interesting so Noelle is surrounded by clones when she comes back to herself. <laughs> Copies of Trickster, uh, Skitter, Gru, Regent, Grace, and Tecton, I, I believe. Um, I, I wasn't clear if that was supposed to be Tecton or not, um, but I maybe believe so. Based on the tags we get at the bottom, I think the answer okay. is yes. All right. Um, but Skitter is controlling rats. It's rat controlling Skitter. Yep. That's that's, that's awesome. Gross. Yep. <laughs> Somehow worse than bug controlling Skitter. And she's like covered in in. A, clothing of rats the same way skitter does with her bugs yeah idolin is on his knees in front of her and he's despairing he isn't finding that well of power that he expected to find there's just nothing to reach for he says Uh, poor fool yeah so noel repeats her deal to idolin again he can have uh, he can leave and let her have the undersiders and she'll surrender Uh, her her skitter clone looks concerned when she takes idolin's armband and noel snaps at her then tells her Trickster said you thrive in this kind of impossible fight. Prove it. Or die horribly. I don't care. And the clone smiles back at her. <laughs> oh man, evil skitter. 
the things you could tell us about our skitter. I yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait. It's going to be so great. I know. I Dolan calls in reinforcements to help with the clones, and then he calls the heroes off of Noel, uh, and at this point refers to her by her code name, her cape name. Finally, Echidna, because somebody didn't want her to be associated with his little girl, Noel. Yeah, Echidna, which is of course the I think it's Greek mythology, right? That's the half human, half monster that's called the mother of all monsters. Like I think every monster in greek mythology comes from the echidna i think they say is that true uh, see i had no idea i thought yeah. it was i thought it was literally i thought it was literally named after the echidna animal which is an egg-laying mammal no which, I, which, I mean it works for both but it works no, for both but but I, but I think mother of monsters is absolutely the correct <laughs> interpretation yeah i i did not even know that well there you go thanks, you learned something that new. Up. yeah um and, and this I think this calls back to this idea of Noelle in this moment of where she's finally slipping further away from being human and finally becoming uh, this this passenger. That's when we award her with this code name. That's when she becomes Echidna. Um, and I think that's really fitting based on the name stuff we were doing earlier in the in the chapter or the yeah. arc. Yeah, no, that's that, it's it's like an inversion of of. Uh of uh you know telling weld to find his own name it's like yeah. no noel you're not noel anymore you're a yeah. kid now yeah matt refresh my memory do we know noel's last name because there's that beat about the little girl um do we do we know if that's her same last name good question i don't think we do i would have to look back at the beginning of of the of the traveler's arc and see if um um uh, I, I know that like Trickster's mom lists some last names. We might cross check it against those. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm not sure. It, it would be interesting though, for. because <laughs> yeah, because well, and they specifically say the little girl's three years old. So if it, if this is supposed to be an earth bet version of Noel, how does that work? That's interesting. Yeah, that shouldn't it probably is. I mean, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't work that way. Right. It yeah. should be, it should be her age, but yeah. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. We don't really actually know how all that works at this point. Um, yeah, so we are, um, yeah, um, so, so yeah, Echidna takes the, the takes the reprieve and she rushes back to Coyle's base. She thinks about how uh, now she feels that her other self has an identity and and it's an identity so vast that it makes her problems feel meaningless and, and artificial. It's not my world, she thought. It's almost like a game, killing characters in some false barbaric setting, which calls back perfectly to the start of the chapter, which was the video game. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful little self-contained story in this chapter. And I think it says something about the world and the passengers, too. Because um, I've been working on this big, huge, like book-wide theory again that I like to do every so often that end up being mm -hmm. totally wrong because I'm way too specific with them. <laughs> but... Um, uh, I'm not ready to share that quite yet, but the this passenger stuff we've learned in this section seems to lend some credence to it. That the idea that the, that the entire world, that every single person in it, that to these entities, none of it matters. It's so small and insignificant. It's a it's a kid, you know, burning ants with a magnifying glass. Um, and you, you know what? No, I'm gonna do it. I'm I'm gonna speculate. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm just gonna do. It. I'm gonna go nuts. So stay tuned because right. I'm just gonna go crazy. Good. Be bold. Yeah. 
So Noel is able to move through the collapsed tunnels leading to Coil's base by basically absorbing the rubble, blocking it into her body, and then squeezing through like a fluid. Jesus, I didn't know <laughs> she could do that. That's new. Yeah, she's she's so durable, she can just smush through things. So she finds Tattletail and Rachel inside, and uh, she smells the heroes closing in outside, and it reminds her of the qualifiers game explicitly. Well then, Tattletail grinned. Her tightening grip on the railing betrayed the emotion she was trying to hide. Come on, do your worst. What a way to end a chapter, Matt. That was so great. Yeah. Um, everyone asked me when I finish the arcs and the sections of reading for the week if I'm tempted to really just jump in and read on. Uh, usually the answer is no, because I'm usually more tempted to go back and dive into the arc again and, and find some new stuff in there that I missed the first time around. But this time, I really, really, really wanted to dive into Arc 19. I really wanted to start reading right away. I didn't do it. I stopped myself. But I really wanted to. Yeah, this is definitely one of those times when um, when the the propulsiveness carries across arcs, and it's it's not a it's not a clean dramatic ending. Um, it, it yeah, and it doesn't yeah. it doesn't need to be. It's that's not a criticism. It's the, just uh, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of common themes amongst this arc but you're right it's not a self-contained story it's it doesn't complete a storyline um there there's there's definitely some connections that create that make this an arc but mm -hmm. yeah we're, we're not done and that you can feel that as you exit this chapter yeah um do we want to play the name game real quick because sure. all these clones have names and they're all really wonderful yeah <laughs> um, yeah yeah, why don't you go for it? Uh, so, Groove's is named Abhorror. These are all me. It doesn't actually say, I'm guessing. So, if, if you think I'm wrong, let me know. Um, okay. Because Abhorror pretty, links pretty well with Groove and what the definition of those two words mean. I'm guessing Trickster's is Charlatan, which is pretty great. Um, Skitter's is Scurry, which fits with the rats very well. <laughs> I like that a lot. Uh, I love that. Uh, I'm guessing Grace's is Gross. That's the one I'm the leash. That's the one I did basically by process of elimination. Um, okay. It, it, it fits the, at least it's alliteration. So you get yeah. that going for you. Uh, yeah. Tectons is Temblor, which is basically just another word for an earthquake. So that makes yeah. a lot of sense. And Regents is Vizier, which... <laughs> I like a lot too. <laughs> totally. Oh, and man. now I'm I'm gonna. I know it, he doesn't have one, but I'm putting a a mustache on him <laughs> and a, a goatee. I'm putting that on. Right. Him. Yes. Me. Me too. You know. That's that's definitely my headcanon. All right. Um. Awesome. That wraps up the the arc yeah, discussion. And we are running um, so late. So let's that's, let's go fast. Good stuff. All right. Well, then let's go fast through those speculations, Scott. All right. First, let's close some old ones out. I said that the passengers inside each cape have the ability to manipulate their emotions or actions, causing an increased amount of conflict in the world. We're going to say tentatively correct based off of the passenger inside Noel. Um, yep. If this is just something specific to Noel's passenger and we lose, we learn that later, we'll change. But for now, we're going to say that. Um, the other one was Noel has an eating disorder, which also was proven correct. So let's move right into my new ones, Matt. Um, here's where I'm going to get really bold. Okay. Um, I'm saying that Taylor had a second trigger event already and it happened immediately after the first while still in her locker. And that is the thing, the smell that, uh, Noel senses in both, uh, Gru, uh, Skitter and Idolan. I, I don't know how Idolan matches up with that. Um, I haven't quite 
figured out that yet, but he's super powerful. So it seems to reason that if anyone out of this group was going to have two triggering events, um, one would be him. But the, the important part of my thing is that Taylor had a second trigger already um, and just didn't know it, which was something that was set up in the Nazi interlude last week um, that we barely touched on because I was having a, a moment. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> All right. And here is my big, bold, beautiful a prediction that I wasn't even sure I was going to make and then just decided to do it. So here we go. I think that the passengers or the things that make them are performing a 300 year long science experiment, um, which fits with the, the in 300 years thing that we learned in the birdcage in that one section. So they seed our planet with the potential for these trigger events and, and observe and report as we destroy ourselves. If not enough people are having trigger events, they send down the Endbringers, who attack separate locations and cause enough devastation to induce the trigger events, uh, but they don't go rampaging and destroy the entire world outright on their own. Um, how Scion and Cauldron fit into that theory, uh, I don't know yet. Um, so let's call it a theory and a speculation in progress, maybe? All right. Yeah, I like I like big, long, complicated ones like that, because like, it's it's valuable to see kind of where your think where your head is and where like how you're putting things together mm -hmm. um and and like so what if you know every detail doesn't line up right like it's it's still really fun to hear kind of the 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 progression of of, of your, your your thought process cool so. all right well yeah that will wrap up our coverage of arc 18 queen I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. As always, we appreciate your feedback and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. You can always reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod, uh, which is also where I do my live readings every Thursday. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, that's D-A-L-Y, and Matt's is at mordinamail, and that's M... O R D. <laughs> I'm just kidding. This is in the show notes. Oh, poor Victoria. <laughs> um, if, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week on the main Daily Planet podcast feed, Matt and I got really nerdy about the D&D podcast, The Adventure Zone. Most of the discussion is spoiler-free, so if you haven't finished The Adventure Zone or don't even know what that is, uh, give it a listen. It's one of the best stories that I've ever experienced, and I'm reading Worm, so that's, uh, that's saying something. Mm -hmm. Also, tomorrow, when you're listening to this, we will have a new episode of our monthly series called The Kryptonian Collection. We're bringing that back, uh, where we discuss Terry Gilliam's 1995 film, 12 Monkeys, and decide whether it's good enough to enter a list of the best films our planet has to offer. So look out for that. Yep, those, those are really fun. We also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. That's D-A-L-Y. If you like what we do here and want to make sure that we keep doing more, consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks to new producer at the $2 level, Jake T. Thanks, Jake. We're also in the middle of planning some changes to our uh, patron rewards and our goals and everything um, because we realize that we need some better incentives, especially those of you that donated at the higher levels. 
Um, we're going to make those announcements as they come. We're still working on it. Just stay tuned for it. Um, but, but as always, thank you guys so much for your support. Um, we're, we're trying to make you happy. If you, if you are donating money to us, we want to make sure you're getting something out of it. So. Yeah. Yeah. We, we really, really appreciate it. Um, uh, also speaking of Patreon, make sure you stop by Wildbo's page and toss some money there because he is the guy that makes this whole thing possible. Yeah. And as I always say, if you can't donate, that's fine, but you can still help us out. Um, if you're like a therapist, for example, maybe you can like recommend each and every one of your patients listen to our podcast. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know a lot about therapy, but I'm assuming it'll be good for them. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think what we do is basically therapy for fictional characters. I feel like you're right. Um, also, if you are subscribed to us on iTunes, please take a quick minute to rate and review the podcast. It really does help. This week's spotlight review comes all the way from Russia, Matt. Wow. Uh, user Lion Shadow gives us five stars and says, The awesomest literature podcast ever. Two men speaking about Worm, the superhero-ish dramatic novel, and it's not boring. Hey, thanks. Uh, <laughs> actually, it's really fun and interesting. I'm waiting for the next chapter, like if it was a new Game of Thrones season. Matt, we just got compared to Game of Thrones. Wow. Which is a huge That's compliment, assuming you still like Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, I'll assume he's talking about like season two or season yeah, three. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, all right. That's it for us this week. Next week, we're covering the first half of Arc 19 Scourge. Uh, Scott, what do you think this one's about? Well, Matt, I expect that the Echidna will be the scourge of Brockton Bay as the battle against her elevates to its climax. I really can't wait to see how Skidder and company get out of all this mess. Well, we will find out next Wednesday on another exciting episode of We've Got Worm. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>